0: internet i'm annie i'm kit and i'm mac and this is i will fight you a podcast where we've been turning opinion into stone cold facts since 1986 today's fact bangerang bangerang <laughs> it's just bangerang it's just bangerang shout out to my lost voice we weren't particularly clever on the evening we were trying to come up with the fact for this episode so it's just bangerang this has basically just been in our list for, like, literal years as I want Kit to talk about Hook. We finally came around to it. Because this is our Christmas episode and Hook technically takes place over Christmas. Listen, if Die Hard is technically a Christmas movie because it takes place over Christmas, then so is Hook. Hook at least has, like, not direct Christmas themes, but at least Christmas adjacent themes. It
1: does.
0: Love, family, etc. Gay Pirates. Gay pirates, that's a Christmas theme, right? <laughs> it's an always theme. So we're gonna have to do some background on this one because Hook is technically a sequel to Peter Pan, but not the Disney like animated Peter Pan. It's mostly a sequel to the book Peter and Wendy by Jamberry. It came out in 1991. It had a really, really long production cycle. Spielberg started developing this idea in the 80s, entered pre-production in 1985. And then Spielberg, quote unquote, abandoned it, which was because his eldest son was born and probably making a movie about a business-oriented dad who neglects his children was a little too on the nose for him. Which is especially funny because he wrote it about the relationship between himself and his own dad. Which is like, wow, Spielberg writing a movie about working out his contentious relationship with his father? Really? Spielberg? I don't see it. Shock. Awe. Amazement. (laughs) He eventually comes back to the project in 1989 after they had already attached a different director. But I guess Robin Williams and some of the other people attached to the project didn't like this new director. So they were like, hey, Spielberg? Steven? (laughs) Hey, Steve. (laughs) Steve listen. Steve back. Steve, come back.
1: Steve, please.
0: (laughs) And he says yes in 1989. And then the movie comes out in 1991. Spielberg is actually a pretty good pick for the project because I guess his mother read him Peter and Wendy often as a kid. So he's always had a lifelong fascination with the project. We can talk about Peter Pan here. Like we can talk about Peter and Wendy here a bit. Who wants the Peter Pan deep lore?
1: (laughs) I do. I do. Please. I want to hear it. Tell us, Kit.
0: So, the character of Peter Pan first appeared in J.M. Barrie's novel, The Little White Bird, in 1902, where he was an orphan boy being raised by fairies in Kensington Park. He could fly, he was referred to as somewhat boy, but mostly bird, etc., etc. Then, in 1904... Barry writes an entire play about Peter called Peter Pan. The play is a success, and then he then goes on to expand the story out into a novel, first called Peter and Wendy, later just title changed to Peter Pan, which is the Peter Pan story you know, where three kids, Wendy, John, and Michael, get lured away to Neverland by the quasi-mythological figure Peter Pan. That is mostly what I've got for the Peter Pan deep lore for now. Although I reread the book in preparation for doing this episode, so I will be like jumping in. Free- frequently to be like, that was in the book. <laughs> and it will be very annoying for all of you. Excellent. That made me remember, isn't Wendy a made up name? Like this is the origin of the name Wendy. Yeah. Wendy was not a name in the English language before J.M. Barry wrote the name into Peter Pan. He was the, like a family friend's child, referred to Barry himself as my Wendy. <laughs> because children can't pronounce s, and that sort of got abbreviated into Wendy, and then Barry used the name Wendy for the little girl character in Peter Pan. Oh, that's very good. Okay, first off, like it turns out, for a while this movie was actually being developed as a musical, which makes so much sense to me. <laughs> like, there's still like two musical numbers in this. Yes. <laughs> Like, there were eight songs written, five songs finalized, only two of which survived into the final movie, those being the song that the kids sing in the stage play at the beginning of the movie, and the lullaby Peter's daughter sings in act two. And like, this this movie feels like a musical. It has that kind of like high production, like whimsy. Give us a hook. You know that bit from Game Changer, which is just a sketch entirely made up to the lead ups to like musical numbers? That's kind of <laughs> what this movie is. To the point where while it was being considered for a musical, Michael Jackson was actually considered for the role of Peter Pan. He was approached. And while he was interested in the role, he did not like the idea of a Peter Pan who grew up and forgot he was Peter Pan, which is a statement about Michael Jackson. I'm not touching with a 10 foot pole. Yeah, no, we're just going to step away from that. Yeah, we're here for the fun times. (laughs) (laughs) No bummers. Oh, my God, y'all, y'all, not only was there a song planned for Captain Hook and a song planned for Smee, so we could have had Dustin Hoffman and Bob Hoskins having individual songs, oh, man. <laughs> but also there was a song written for the character of Granny Wendy played by Maggie Smith, and the song oh, was can... recorded. It was actually recorded by Julie Andrews, so Maggie Smith could lip sync. Oh, my God. Awesome. We're living in the worst timeline this, <laughs> this is the shittiest timeline man we could have had that that said i do really like this movie musical or no oh absolutely but god <laughs> julie andrews just singing up a little song for her pal maggie <laughs> Fuck. they did use some of the melodies the rest of the song's melodies that were cut were used as instrumentals in the soundtrack and honestly I do have to wonder how good these songs would have actually been because they were largely like the eight originals were written by John Williams. And while he's a composer, I don't think he's that much of a songwriter. Like, I can't imagine those skills translating as super well. Yeah, no, he does sweeping orchestral bits, not necessarily, you know, musicals. He's not a lyricist. Different skill set. Yeah, exactly. 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 I just have three names that popped out at me when I was looking at the production of this. First off, Spielberg brought on a visual consultant whose work he was familiar with. It was John Napier, and Steven Spielberg specifically said, I really like your work on cats. (laughs) (laughs) We can't escape cats. This is the set designer for cats. We're trapped forever. We're never (laughs) getting away from cats. It also turns out John Napier designed the video for Captain EO over at Epcot, which does not surprise me in hindsight. We're just imagine like that conspiracy board wall with like bits of red string going everywhere and everything leads back to like cats and Captain EO. It always comes back to cats in the end. When Spielberg left the project, as I mentioned earlier, the new director they picked was Nick Castle, who is apparently the one who developed the idea of, like, Hook surviving and the crocodile dying. And maybe Peter Pan grows up and has kids. It's not totally clear where the genesis of a lot of this was. But you also might know Nick Castle, I hope you don't, as the director of The Last Starfighter and the Dennis the Menace movie. And what's this other thing on my list? Oh, yeah. He's the original actor for Michael Myers in Halloween.
1: Oh, my God.
0: There's a lot to unpack there. He reprised the role in Halloween 2018, Halloween Returns, and Halloween Kills. And I believe he is the person doing, you know, the Michael Myers breathing. So that's a range. Yeah. (laughs) That's an artistic range. (laughs) Dennis the Menace and Michael Myers. And what was the other movie? The Last Starfighter. The Last Starfighter? The last fucking Starfighter. The movie where a guy is so good at video games that aliens abduct him to come be good at fighting other aliens. Right. And then Ernest Klein writes a book later that's basically just the last Starfighter, except it also involves taking special gamer weed. Right. This is me. Just shout out to my friend Ben Golly. I refuse to read that book and be your sin eater. And my third name is a part that I am just going to directly copy paste from Wikipedia because I don't think it could be said any better. Okay. Spielberg briefly worked with Hart to rewrite the script before hiring Malia Scotch Marmo to rewrite Captain Hook's dialogue and oh, Carrie man. Fisher to rewrite Tinkerbells. Oh. <laughs> the Writers Guild of America gave Hart and Marmo screenplay credit while Hart and Castle were credited for the story. Fisher went uncredited. Yeah, Carrie Fisher was like an uncredited script doctor for like decades in yeah. Hollywood. It's that's, that's basically what she was doing once she decided she wasn't going to do acting anymore. And she's phenomenal at it. Like, consistently, she's Carrie good. Fisher knocks it out of the fucking park as a script doctor. And I'm listening to this and I'm like, oh my God, that's why Tinkerbell sounds like that. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie Fisher specifically came in, rolled up her sleeves, and right, like, all right, I fucking got this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Carrie Goddamn Fisher. Because honestly, like, Tinkerbell's dialogue, we'll get into this later, but Tinkerbell's dialogue is just, Mwah. it's good. Ugh. That's all the background stuff I have for this. I don't know if there's anything else y'all want to get into before we dive in. Uh, this movie makes me cry. Excellent. Yeah. Peter Pan is, by the way, my favorite book, like of all time. Annie was inordinately pleased to find this out about me. Hook is one of my favorite movies. I do love it dearly. I cry every time I watch it. And one time Annie watched it with me and saw me crying over this movie. And they kept like pointing out all the things that I hope they're going to do here, which is like, oh, this part's from the book. This starts <laughs> from the book. Let me read. It's, it's specifically referencing this line of dialogue. It was one of the most charming experiences I have ever had with Kiddington Middle Name Walker. Yeah, it's been a hot minute since I've seen the play. I cannot say with authority whether something was in the play. So when I say something was in the original, I'm mostly talking about the book. Which is, you know, kind of a novelization of the play anyway, so it's probably fairly close. Mm, yeah, it works out. It's not a lot that changes from play to book. It's just kind of longer and with more detail.
1: Alright, so so are we ready to get this party started?
0: Yeah. Yes. Mac,
1: are you excited? I'm excited. I hadn't seen Hook in, like, years. Really? Yeah, I hadn't seen it since I was, like, maybe six. What? It was great.
0: <laughs> wow, I'm really shocked that you were able to do that because it's one of those, like, always-on-TV kind of movies. My mom probably
1: always skipped it for Braveheart because I mostly remember <laughs> Braveheart being on TV.
0: Oh, that's excellent. So you had a good
1: time? Yeah. Hell Yeah. I didn't take any notes, though, so I'm going in this no list. You're just vibes. I was knitting while watching.
0: (laughs) I just want to confirm that as this movie gets started, you know, it's got the old TriStar logo with the Pegasus slowly galloping towards the screen and then freeze framing. I just... Man, I missed that. I want to confirm that my dog still, in fact, hates horses. (laughs) Oh, okay. Winged horses included in that, I guess. Winged horses included because the TriStar Pegasus slowly galloped towards the frame and Brune lost her shit. (laughs) Man, I miss the Tristar Pegasus. The TV is mounted on the wall. It is so much higher than this corgi is, but God, she gives it her best effort to get as close to it as possible. We open on a play of Peter and Wendy. We have Peter Pan the play being performed by seven-year-old children. Oh, yeah.
1: It's actually extremely charming.
0: Yeah, it's the most charming way to watch Peter Pan, really. Oh, yeah. You've even got like the teacher prompting the lines and asking the kids to be louder. So the kids start shouting at the top of their lungs. It's really cute.
1: (laughs) It's really cute.
0: The part of Wendy, of course, is being played by Maggie Banning, who is the daughter of out in the crowd, Moira and Peter Banning. Peter Banning, of course, being played by the lead of this film, Robin Williams, who was quite possibly the greatest dramatic actor of our
1: age. Mm hmm.
0: Agreed. I stand by that.
1: Yeah. I, I stand by that. And Moira is, well, well, we'll get there. Just a quick
0: note here. The room set, like Wendy's bedroom that they put together for this little stage show, looks exactly like the real bedroom later, which is a delightful little detail. Yeah, it's good. It's real fucking good. As they are watching this play, which, by the way, this is like, what, the first scene maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Peter's phone rings, which I need you to understand that in like 1991 and basically like between 89 and 91, we're talking about having a cell phone is a big weird thing to have. And it is the size of a brick. It's the kind where you need to extend the antenna and flip the keypad open. Which he will do dramatically later on. (laughs) It is ridiculous for someone to have a cell phone. It is the slight evolution of someone having a pager as like a business pager. Yeah. And specifically leaving it on during a child's play is a hell of a thing. Yeah. This is rudeness before this kind of thing was a common rudeness. And Peter, of course, takes the call because that's the character he is in this movie. Yeah. Peter Banning is a high powered lawyer dude who does property development deals and does not pay attention to his children when he should. That's the characterization for the first act. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh, he's like, he agrees to a business meeting tomorrow morning, but his son, Jack, who is sitting next to him, is like, Dad, my game. And he holds up a baseball that he just brought to the play so nobody would be confused. <laughs> At no point does Jack not have a baseball (laughs) glove or a baseball on him for like the first half of this movie. Jack sleeps with his baseball glove. Jack carries that baseball everywhere. This is a security baseball. He brought it to his sister's place so he could think about baseball. (laughs) Peter says like, okay, well, let's make it a, a quick meeting then. And he like puts his hand over the speaker and he whispers loudly to Jack, I'll be there. My word is my bond, which is... Such a phrase to say to a child. (laughs) It's a thing you say to a child. (laughs) A normal thing. Yeah, that's a normal thing to say to a child. Gosh, we go to the baseball game the next day. I do want to quickly add that at the end of this scene is one of the two musical numbers in this movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a song called, I believe, We Don't Want to Grow Up. I want to be like Peter Pan, I think is what it's... Okay, yeah, and it's just these kids okay and singing and dancing along to the song up on the stage. I do want to point out that apa- what, from what I've been told, the children's choir performing this song. Not the actors on stage, but the actors performing the song. and Jaffe of Critical Role fame in every anime ever is in there somewhere, I've heard. Oh, huh. how about that? Anyway, baseball. That is a weird coincidence. He was a child actor. We go to the baseball game, which is like a little baby baseball game. These kids are like, what, nine? Ten? Yeah. I think Jack's supposed to be like 10 years old. Yeah. Thereabouts. He's old enough to be snarky. Yeah, he's old enough to be sarcastic. And then we do these intercuts between Peter trying to leave the office and Jack being stressed out about baseball and Moira and Maggie in the stands being like, where's your father? And Maggie just like eats a huge, delicious looking <laughs> hot dog because she doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, meanwhile we learned the two important details, one, Peter is going to be giving a speech at a children's hospital for his Granny Wendy. Granny Wendy is getting whole wing of the hospital named after her and dedicated to her. And two, Peter's afraid of flying. Oh my god, like, they're like, he gets into the elevator and he's like, well, gotta fly. It's like, do you get it? Do you get do you it? Get- P- Peter Pan is, he's known for flying. Yeah. It's ironic. Do you get it? <laughs> There is a really good line delivery on Peter saying, well, if it's my time to go, it's my time to go. But what if it's the pilot's time to go? (laughs) And like right as the elevator doors close. (laughs) We switch back to Jack at the baseball game. And as far as I understand from what I'm pretty sure was going on at the game, Jack is at bat. He swings the bat once. And then that is the game. That's third out, baby. You need three strikes, y'all. I think that the first two strikes happened off screen and Ah, also the first out of that inning and also the previous eight innings. But yeah, and it is established here that this will become important later. Jack can't hit a curveball. So Jack loses the whole game. Yep. Bottom of the ninth. And it's like the last game of the series. It's it's a pretty rotten feeling for a 10 year old. Yeah. (laughs) And it doesn't help that the opposing team then proceeds to do a celebratory chant for the Blue Jays for losing. The Blue Jays being Jack's team. Yeah, they do the two four six eight. who do we appreciate? Opposing team for sucking. Mm-hmm. Thanks, losers. <laughs> Which, look, I remember when that happened in, like, little kid soccer. It always sounded stupid then, even as yep. a child. <laughs> also, uh, we find out, like, that Peter has sent ahead some guy from the office to tape the parts of the yeah. game that he is missing. This does not go over well with literally anyone. No. So- Especially because, like, this isn't even a guy who knows the family. He's like, hi, Mrs. Banning, which one's your son? (laughs) And, of course, Peter arrives at the stadium. And it's empty. Yeah, completely empty. It looks abandoned. It looks very much like, why, no one's played Little League here in 30 years. (laughs) Not since the accident. (laughs) Also, despite the fact that this takes place over Christmas, but like there's no snow on the ground whatsoever, so I'm guessing this takes place somewhere in California or maybe the American South. Wikipedia said San Francisco, so it makes sense. San Francisco makes sense. Wait a minute. Over Christmas? There is no baseball that is still playing by Christmas. They said it was the Santa series. Maybe that's something that they made up hmm. so that they could have a baseball game in December. <laughs> Well, I mean, Jack does love baseball more than life itself, so. Yes. That's the baseball game. That's everybody's business taken care of. We have to fly to London now, and we're flying Pan Am. Hey, guys, remember Pan Am? Pan Am was an airline, and it was actually already out of business by this point when they made this movie, but (laughs) they wanted to do the joke, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Like, Pan Am! Do you You get get it? Get it? It's like, Peter Pan... And it's like, do you get it? There's some very on the nose things in this movie and I can't find it in me to be like upset about any of them. <laughs> it's a movie where pirates fight lost boys. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. But they're allowed. Yeah. Also, I guess that means they didn't have to pay anyone for the use of the Pan Am logo. Okay. Oh, yeah. Also, we go into the plane. We have a scene inside the plane. And my God, the seats are so spacious. Oh, oh there's nice. such big seats. Oh, everyone looks good comfortable. And I mean, it's like, you know, 1991 comfortable. So the plane's probably super sh**ty and somebody's probably allowed to smoke. (laughs) Oh yeah. People are (laughs) definitely still allowed to smoke on this plane. However, despite the fact that the air is blue, the seats are nice and large and you can actually hear each other talk.
1: Yeah. Oh, oh. hmm. It's halcyon days. Anyway.
0: Anyway, the plane's going through some turbulence, which has Peter distressed (laughs) He thinks he's
1: gonna die. Yeah, he is, like, gripping his seats and...
0: He can't even focus on his tiny business laptop thing. Nope. With a little bitty LCD screen. And then Maggie pops up with a drawing and says, look what Jack (laughs) drew, and it's a drawing of the plane crashing, and everyone has a parachute except for Peter. There's some great fire, too. Oh, the fire's so good. (laughs) There's some great blending in there with the markers.
1: (laughs) Good job, Jack. He's got a future. And Peter's like, why don't I have a parachute? And... Maggie just kinda of like, ow. And heads off while Moira turns around and goes, You need to talk to your son.
0: <laughs> she says, You're not gonna die without a telephone and a fax machine. And he's like, I got the telephone in the briefcase, I'm halfway there. <laughs> <laughs> so Moira and Peter exchange seats because they're in two rows next to each other. And Jack, meanwhile is throwing a baseball over and over at the airbag compartment and making a really loud thunk which makes him the enemy of every single person on this plane. Yes. Oh yeah, multiple people on this plane are fantasizing about murdering that child. (laughs) Yeah. But Peter tries to ignore this and is also like, oh my god, don't throw that, you could break a window. And Jack's like, what, they're double lined. It's the double layered, you can't break them. And he actually smacks the baseball against the window, which gives Peter a panic attack. He tries the my word is my bond thing again, and Jack is clearly not buying any of this. Yeah, he says, yeah, a junk bond, which I guess he's old enough to know what those are. (laughs) I feel like that's probably something he has heard his dad say or something. Oh, probably. At some point, he does, in fact, throw the baseball at the ceiling again, and it does, in fact, break open the airbag compartment. Yeah, the, the masks, like the oxygen masks that drop down and they tell you to put yours on before assisting a child, those drop down. Yeah. Peter freaks out, screams at Jack to stop being a child, and Jack is like, I, I am a child? <laughs> like, which is the proper response? Yeah, it is. Yeah, which is the proper response when you're 10. <laughs> So the plane lands, we arrive in London, and because they're going to go to the ceremony for Granny Wendy, they're staying at Wendy's, so they're going up to her apartment, to her house. At one point, uh, Moira corrects Peter and says, no, no, it's number 14. Number 14 is the number. It's the street number of the house from the books. (laughs) Hell yes. Yes. Yeah, the reason Wendy still lives there is because in the last chapter of the book, Wendy's husband bought the house from Wendy's dad, who was not up to all the f-ing stairs, uh, and her mother was dead by that point. <laughs> so that's why Wendy still lives there, is that she and her husband bought it from her parents. That's wonderful. Yeah, that is explicitly in the book. I've heard people complain <laughs> about this, and it's a dumb complaint. <laughs> it sounds like this is maybe the first time that Jack and Maggie have met Wendy.
1: Because they talk about first impressions. They did say that they hadn't been back in 10 years, which makes sense of Jack's 10. That's true.
0: It's very confusing because at one point, Wendy says how much you've grown in a year. Yeah. And yet at other points, they're talking like they haven't been here before. I think what the deal is, is that Moira and the kids have been coming every year and Peter hasn't been for 10 years. Huh. Maybe? Oh, that makes sense. Maybe she's brought Jack or, or maybe they've just sent pictures. Like school photos? or The important thing, I guess, is that Peter has been away for a long time. Yes. Peter was supposed to visit every year and he hasn't. He hasn't been here in 10 years. Also, the housemaid is named Liza, who is also the name of the servant from the book. Oh, okay. The darlings had one servant, if you don't count Nana as a servant. Nana was, of course, the dog nurse. Yeah. Not a nurse two dogs, but a dog who was a nurse. So Liza was the name of the house servant they had oh. in the book. Neat. We also run into Toodles. Yeah. Toodles! Toodles is here. He just kind of also lives in this house insofar as we don't technically know what Toodles' deal is supposed to be. We get some exposition from Liza that like Toodles is supposed to be in a home, but Wendy just couldn't bear to do it because Toodles was Wendy's first orphan, which yeah, he was. He came back to live with Wendy's family with a lot of the other Lost Boys at the end of the book. Excellent. Yeah, no, Toodles was one of the Lost Boys. That will come back in Act 2, but... The important thing for Toodles right now is that, well, everybody thinks he's, he's, you know... Senile. Not doing so hot. Yeah, they think he's senile, and they always put it as the colloquialism, he's lost his marbles. Toodles himself keeps saying, I've lost my marbles, and mm-hmm. he's like physically looking for his marbles, <laughs> like checking under chairs and stuff. And everybody's like, <laughs> I'll say. Yeah. Readers of the book or people who are familiar with the story may be wondering, oh, if Wendy's here and Toodles is here, where are John and Michael? Well, here's the thing. Yeah. Women of that generation tended to vastly outlive the men in their life, and that's not even accounting for the fact that there were two world wars in between the story of Peter Pan and the modern day of this movie. Ah, right. John and Michael are dead. Right. That would do it, wouldn't it? John and Michael are almost certainly dead. And they are in London, where the Blitz was. Yep. Yeah, so if they weren't killed in World War I, where an entire generation of young people was functionally wiped out, then they were probably killed during World War II when their house got bombed. And if they weren't killed then, they are probably dead of old age because they drank and smoked like people born in the 1900s. (laughs) You know, they never actually bring up, like, John and Michael aside from just as, like, references to when they were kids. So, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of the three children... Day Maggie Smith is here. Day Maggie Smith is here, you guys.
1: Day Maggie Smith is here. She's Wendy. Ah, oh, she's so
0: good. At playing way older than she was at the time. Because Wendy here is in her probably late 80s, early 90s. And Day Maggie Smith was not that old when this movie came out. No, but like she really just inhabits. Yeah, she's got a presence when she oh, shows yes. up for the first time. Oh, man. Like, I love the way that they shoot. Maggie Smith in here, where she is always framed as both a matron, as an elder, and also as, like, almost the one that got away. Yeah. Maggie Smith and Robin Williams both understand that these are two characters that have a very closely knit history where they are wildly important to each other, even if Peter doesn't know this at the time.
1: Mm -hmm. And she's almost always framed almost ethereally, like she's more than just a normal person mythologically one might say absolutely
0: uh but i mean she's still able to sort of inhabit that role of like a grandma of this lovely old lady who just wants to like look at your school pictures and talk about how big you are and force feed (laughs) you food because you're definitely hungry yeah liza's been cooking for a week there's so much food (laughs) and they're like oh well peter what do you do now these days Jack jumps in and he talks about being a lawyer and he uses a whole lot of like nautical metaphors. Comes in and blows them out of the water, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then we have the line that I think is in like every trailer, or at the very least, it's a very It's a very trailery line. This is an important line, yeah. Yes. And Maggie Smith turns to the camera and she's like, Why, Peter, you've become a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> and the camera like lingers on her for a few seconds. Yeah, this is a Spielberg movie. Yeah. Oh, it's such a Spielberg movie. (laughs) (sighs) So there's a brief scene where Peter goes up to the nursery, which is the nursery from Peter Pan. You have a moment where he's sort of looking at a painting of Captain Hook's ship, the Jolly Roger, up on the wall, and there's a very ominous panning over the painting itself and he seems spooked by it. And then he goes over and closes the nursery window and we get a lingering shot on like the latch of the nursery window, (laughs) which is shaped like a hook. It's shaped exactly like a hook hand hook. Yeah. I mean, that becomes important later so that you know that like the window latch looks like that for a moment of tension later, but also like it looks like Captain Hook's hook. We're just, yeah. It's a Spielberg movie. They're having some fun with it. They do this bit where also after he's done that, someone calls his name from downstairs and he instantly pivots, sets his hands on his hips like he does the Peter Pan pose and then he just like... Falls back, and then the, his, his posture just collapses, and he falls back into Peter Benning. Into middle aged Peter Banning, mergers and acquisitions lawyer who's dabbling in land development. <laughs> <laughs> and then Peter has to take a phone call, which while he is taking this business call, the kids are being loud and like just playing. This is the
1: most actually dad real life thing in the world. Oh my god.
0: The best part is that Moira, you hear her in the background being like, that's a portable phone and there are nine rooms in the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does not need to be in this room. Also, apparently the Sierra Club report for the land development deal he's been working on has come back and there is a cozy blue owl that has a 50 mile mating radius. That means they can't use this land. And it, like they're gonna lose billions of dollars in this. And he's like mad about where owls have to fuck. <laughs> he's so mad about owls <laughs> fucking
1: and he ends up snapping and yelling at his kids to get the hell out of the room
0: Ugh. and like god it's definitely this moment where it's like why doesn't someone just shoot me and jack takes the cue points an imaginary gun in his dad's head and says bang and then like all full of bravado peter yells at the top of his lungs at them and we have this bit of jack instantly just like crumpling and stepping back and going sorry oh
1: jack's child actor is really
0: good honestly yeah there are some very good child actors in this movie it's a very affecting sequence they perform this really well and like it's even shot so that like even the camera work emphasizes how small jack feels in that moment and then of course we have a scene between moira and peter where moira ushers the kids out of the room towards wendy who's gonna take them up to the nursery it's such a good scene mm. and then Moira is sort of like has this just very quiet very furious conversation with Peter where she points out that this is the very rare moment in their lives as parents where the kids want them around and very quickly the kids aren't going to want the parents around the parents are going to be running after the kids for a bit of attention and they only have a few years and Peter is missing it and the thing that I like about this scene is that there are a lot of movies about parenthood I don't think I've ever seen this particular conversation in any of those movies. Mm -hmm. No,
1: I was actually thinking that as I was watching it, like most of the time, if the parents are having this conversation, it's you better be for the family or I am going to leave you or you're being stupid. But no, this is like (laughs) how Moya represents It's so good.
0: They grow up very fast. You only have a few years. You're going to miss it if you're not paying attention. And I think that's sort of what... Is very good about using Peter Pan as like your basis for this story is that it is this is very much a movie about childhood and growing up from the perspective of it doesn't last forever, it's going to stop someday. Mm-hmm. And like Moira is a character who I almost think, while she is very important as a catalyst to Peter Pan's narrative, she is not a character who gets a whole lot of development or screen time. She is a very quiet character person who only speaks when she really needs to when she does she says precisely the thing that she needs to say to the point where i wish i had more of her but if she's only going to be in this much of the movie then this is an incredible scene for moira to have yeah it's very good of course peter doesn't really you know absorb any of that yet but it is important that we have this to lay out these themes so that we understand what we're going to be talking about Yeah, this is a very well-constructed movie. Mm -hmm. And then Peter's phone rings and he tries to answer it and Moira chucks it out the window. Hell yeah, Moira! You do it, Moira. And the dog proceeds to bury the phone in the yard. We later find out that this dog is named Nana. It's not the same Nana from the book because that dog is long dead, but it's just probably named after her. I am inordinately annoyed that this dog is not a Newfoundland. Yeah, this dog is like a- English sheepdog. Yes, thank you. Nana in this movie is an English sheepdog. I've seen movies where she's an English sheepdog. I've seen movies where she's a St. Bernard. Nana's in Newfoundland. She is explicitly in <laughs> Newfoundland. I'm going to die on this fucking hill. <laughs> they give a specific breed or is that the description or is that like based on a dog? She is specifically referred to in the book as a Newfoundland dog. Well, there you go. I think because Barry had a Newfoundland dog when he was writing the play. Anyway, it would have to be like a big dog breed that is used to mothering kids. Like, I feel like if it was like a pit bull would also I'm surprised there aren't more pit bull nanas, honestly, you would think they were pretty good nursery dogs. But pit bulls aren't quite big enough to like carry a child on their back. That is true. We switch back to the nursery because that's where the kids are staying while they're here. And that is when Wendy says the line, which is all children except one grow up because she is talking about Peter Pan the story. Yeah, she actually has like a gorgeous hardcover copy of Peter and Wendy, the type on which must be huge or there must be so many illustrations in there because it is way thicker than any copy of Peter and Wendy (laughs) I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) It's got that wax paper over like the pages with the illustrations. Oh, yeah. To preserve the quality of the prints. Yeah. Yeah. This is a very important book. It's an old book. So Wendy is just sitting under a blanket fort with Maggie while she's, like, decked up. She is in gala dress. And she's just sitting under a blanket fort with Maggie talking about how fairies are born. And we talk about the thing that is from Peter Pan, which is that fairies are born when a baby laughs for the first time. Also, like, cute side detail from the very last chapter of the book where Wendy has her own daughter. When Wendy tells the story of Peter Pan to her own daughter, they sit together under the blankets like a blanket fort. Oh, oh that's cute. Gosh. She even turns a page and she's like, hey, look, this is me. This is Wendy. I'm, I'm Wendy. Wendy. In case it was at all ambiguous, I am the literal Wendy from the story. <laughs> and Maggie's like, ah, they said you weren't. And Wendy's like... Yeah, but I am though. <laughs> yeah, JM Barry was our next door neighbor. He wrote down all of our stories about playing in the nursery with Peter Pan and Captain Hook. And that's my cover story for, <laughs> why, for why there's a book about me going to Never Neverland. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Peter and Moira come in to collect Wendy and put the kids to bed. The window is open, and Peter, who is still afraid of heights, is like, never go near that window. Always close it. That is very important. (laughs) This will be relevant later. This will be relevant later. They climb into bed and Jack is like,
1: where's my baseball? Where's my bedtime baseball? (laughs) It's my emotional support baseball. (laughs) Wendy's like, what is this? And Jack's like, it's a mitt. I'm sleeping with my mitt.
0: Yeah, Maggie mentions that like a guy at the window stole the baseball and he says he's a window washer. (laughs) Yeah, and like. Everybody's like, no, 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 it's fine. Don't worry about it. Nobody's alarmed that a mean, scary man at the window stole a baseball? Yeah, nobody's alarmed that there's a mean, scary man at the window of a children's nursery. It's fine. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah, this is totally fine. We're just going to like, oh, you go to bed. This will be important later. Mm-hmm. Peter also gives Jack his pocket watch as sort of a, he says, Jack, you're in charge now, which is sort of like this archaic, you're the man of the house until I get back kind of thing. And I guess to kind of make it up to Jack, he gives Jack his old antique pocket watch. Yeah, this isn't going to be a thing where Jack has to be responsible for his sister. That's not going to happen. (laughs) Yeah, no. The 10 year old boy is not the man of the house. No, it's more of just a like, here, I am trusting you with this. And also it has to be a pocket watch because don't worry about it. For reasons later. Yeah. And then we switched to the dinner held in Wendy's honor at the Ormond Street Hospital. That is the Great Ormond Street Hospital, which J.M. Barry left the copyright to Peter Pan, both the book and the play, to the Great Ormond Street Hospital. So they have been getting all of the royalties ever since. In fact, the British government actually made an exception for the Great Ormond Street Hospital, stating that in cases of public domain law... All productions of Peter Pan, at least within the UK, have to pay royalties to the Great Ormond Street Hospital in perpetuity. Every American production of Peter Pan, to my knowledge, except Hook, has attempted to get out of paying this money at all costs. What a supervillain thing to do is say, no, I don't want to pay royalties to a children's hospital. Yeah, like Disney tried to get out of it. WB, when they were doing that Pan movie, they tried to get out of it. Everyone's tried to get out of it. I don't want to give the sick children money. We can't pay a percentage of our merchandising to a children's hospital. How dare they? (laughs) Yeesh. Like they said earlier in the movie, they're going to name an entire wing of the Children's Hospital after Wendy, and so this is all in her honor. Peter has a speech that one of his co-workers has written for him, and of course it starts with a couple of lawyer jokes, because it's the 90s. It's the 90s. It's the 90s. He's a lawyer opening a speech. It's it's what you did. (sighs) And then he goes on to explain that not only was he an orphan at this hospital, who Wendy arranged for the adoption of, but Wendy has in fact been... It's unclear whether she was working at the hospital or volunteering there, but either way, she was taking care of kids, especially orphans, and making sure that they could find families and get adopted, which is a very worthy thing for Wendy to be doing with the rest of her life after Peter Pan.
1: Yeah, And
0: there is this beautiful scene where he just says, like, I am sure that there are some of you in the audience who also benefited from Wendy taking care of you. And like slowly, one by one, a bunch of adults with their families stand up and just make like gestures of gratefulness to Wendy. And it's beautiful. It's, It's so good then the whole crowd stands up and it's just like it's not even applause it's just a moment of silence and appreciation and it kind of reminds me of that speech that Fred Rogers gave once where he just said like let's just have a minute of silence where you think about the people you love and the people that you are thankful for and everyone did it and it's beautiful and obviously I'm tearing up it's very sweet I'm tearing up Annie's tearing up Mackenzie's probably tearing up Maggie Smith is absolutely tearing up (laughs) Oh it's it's just Ugh. it's lovely. I'm so glad it's there. I remember when movies had sincere emotions in them. <sighs> Man. <sighs> and we cut back to the house where there is something amiss. There's an incident at the dinner where, like, Wendy obviously looks to feel a bit faint. She can tell something's happening. At the nursery, you can see that hook shaped window latch slowly creaking open. That's why we lingered on it last time. (laughs) Nana starts barking outside. Toodles, who is on the couch downstairs where the Christmas tree is, rises and starts barking too. But that word, but the noise he makes starts turning into hook. And then he exclaims it and repeats it like he is remembering why that is an important word, why that is an important name. And he stares at a ship in a bottle that looks exactly like the Jolly Roger. (laughs) Which looks exactly like the Jolly Roger from later in the movie. The children stare wide-eyed at the latch in the window upstairs and the window blows open and a strange green light and a wind fills the room and the comforters fly directly up off of the children. It's very creepy. It's very well done. Yes. It's very well done. I mean, it's creepy, but in like a sort of a goosebumps children's horror story creepy. Yes. Yeah. This is not a danger to children. This is a bad man is coming. Yeah. And then the adults arrive home. And find the glass broken. Yep. (laughs) Yep. The lights are out. There is a scrape mark in the wall from the door. Up the stairs, like someone has slowly drug a knife through the wall as they climbed up to the children's room. I will say also that, like, this mark is on the right-hand side on the way up the stairs, but it's on the left-hand side if you're on the way down the stairs. And in this movie, in the book, Hook has the hook on his right hand, but he has it on his left hand in this movie because Dustin Hoffman can't fence (laughs) left-handed. So they put the hook on the left hand, which means Hook didn't make this mark on the way up. He made it on the way down. Ooh, that's even creepier somehow. (laughs) He went right into the nursery, took the kids, and then went through trashing the fucking house. Oh my god, that's right, because the windows open from the nursery. Oh my god, that's where he started. Oh shit. Yeah, that's so creepy. (laughs) Oh my god. That's incredible. Oh, and like they, I was watching this scene very carefully and holding up both hands trying to figure out which hand was the hook on. <laughs> oh, that's so good. I love that. This movie has extraordinary attention to detail. It really does. They run up to the nursery. The children are gone. Snow is blowing in through the open window. And while they are looking for the children, they, they search the closets. They search everywhere. And then they find a note stuck to the door with a dagger through it <laughs> oh, my it's this extraordinarily calligraphy note on like this like gorgeous parchment paper there's an illuminated first letter oh god <laughs> this is so james hook the important thing to understand about james hook is a character this is a private school boy <laughs> <laughs> he went to Eton. <laughs> Yeah, he's posh. So he dresses like Charles II, absolutely on purpose. Yeah, this is a fancy pirate. This is a fancy boy. So of course, the note that he's left is like this artfully ripped around the edges piece of parchment with like an illuminated first letter and perfectly calligraphy note just saying your presence is required at the request of your children, Jazz Hook, Captain. Kindest regards, Jazz Hook. which Jess is a older three letter abbreviation of James yes. just so we're clear. And while they're looking at this note and wondering what the hell's going on, that's when Toodles enters the room and almost under his breath says, "Have to fight. Have to fly. Have to crow. Have to save Maggie. Have to save Jack. Hook is back." <laughs> and it should be silly. But the two actors doing this are so incredibly f***ing good that they actually sell it. Yes. Yeah, no, they take this seriously. It sounds strange. Yeah, nobody in this movie is winking at the camera at all. The stakes of this movie are dead serious to every character in it. Yeah, it is haunting the way he says this in this screwed up nursery with everything torn asunder and no children where there should be. Ugh. And then we try to bring you know, normalcy back, and we call the cops. And Phil Collins shows up, Inspector Phil Collins. Oh my god, that's Phil Collins? (laughs) The British detective who shows up is just Phil Collins. Oh my god. God. Y'all, this movie has so many weird cameos for no reason. Oh my god. (laughs) Here's Phil Collins, I guess. Yeah, Phil Collins is supremely unconcerned about these missing children. He just kind of puts the note and the dagger in the evidence bags. And it's like, well, it might be an elaborate prank considering, you know, the literary history of the family. And everyone's like, f*** you, dude. At some point, Toodle walks up to the cop and says, I've forgotten how to fly. And Phil Collins stares at him and says, well, w- one does. <laughs> After the cops have left and they're clearly going to be ineffectual, Wendy and Peter end up speaking privately and Wendy is like, okay, we have to do this now. And she talks to Peter about how he can't remember anything from before he was 12. Yeah. And the first thing he remembers is being at the children's hospital with Wendy. And Wendy's like, you don't think that's weird? You don't think that's weird? And she's like, okay, well... That's because when you were 12, you decided not to go back to Never Never Land because that's when you met my granddaughter, Moira. Because you're Peter Pan. (sighs) And like, I love the way this bit is shot because it is, again, it is an incredibly intimate, quiet moment between these two people who clearly have a history. Like, they're almost shot as lovers here with their faces fairly close and they are in silhouette. It is small and warm. And yet this is still between an 80-year-old woman and a guy who has no idea what happened before he was 12 years old with a woman who is essentially his mother figure. Yep. It's weird and awkward and intimate and gorgeously shot. And there's an extraordinary amount of suspense to it. And the music coming up in the background as Wendy flips the book open and turns to the picture of Peter Pan. Then we cut back to Peter, who's in the same fucking pose, realizes it, and then puts his hands down. <laughs> it's good. It's the hands on hips, arms akimbo thing. It's the pose. He just does it unconsciously. <laughs> it's very good. <sighs> and you know it's coming, but it still works. Oh, yeah. it's uh, Oh, it's so great. After this, Peter is like, I guess I just need to have a drink about this. Yeah, I need to go drink some alcohol about this. So with this glass in hand, he goes up to the nursery. We take a second to establish a very clear shot of Peter's shadow up on the ceiling, because do you get it? Do you get it? Peter Pan Shadow, there's a thing there. Peter chasing his shadow in the nursery. You get it? <laughs> you know, it you know what? It's fine, don't worry about it. Because something way more overt is about to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Peter opens the window, looks out into the night, sees a little light off in the distance. Growing closer. And immediately gets tackled by a fairy. <laughs> And this is a 23-year-old Julia Roberts. This is one of her earliest roles. Yeah. She has, of course, a pixie haircut. Yes. Why wouldn't she? Why wouldn't she? She flies around the room. At some point, Peter calls her the firefly from hell. (laughs) Yeah, he's pretty convinced this is a very large insect in London in winter. What I love about, first off, just her lines in this scene and in the rest of them is that Tinker Bell does not speak like a normal person. She speaks like a fairy tale character. And Julia Roberts throws all of her lines in with this musical storybook cadence, no matter what she is saying. And I really, really love the way that she is written here. Yeah. In the book, in the play, of course, she only speaks in the, a language that sounds like the tinkling of tiny bells. But that was a conceit for the play because it was very difficult to get someone to throw their voice onto a tiny light on the stage <laughs> that was being cast by a guy with a candle and a mirror. <laughs> and Peter has always been able to understand what Tinkerbell says anyway. Uh, so to have her just speaking to him in English is fine. And like, she says things like, oh, I'm Tinkerbell. If less is more, there's no end to me, Peter Pan. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's a good fucking line. <laughs> At some point, she tries to be like, oh, it's you. It's Peter Pan. Remember, Peter? The world was ours. We could do everything or nothing. All I had to be was anything because it was always us. Tinkerbell is and always has been in love with Peter. (laughs) (laughs) It is this wonderful musical language, and I adore it. It's very good. She's immediately like, all right, let's go get your kids. Let's go on an adventure. We're going to go get your kids back. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) she tries to throw pixie dust on him and he sneezes and the force of it ricochets her back into the dollhouse where she starts crying because fairies only have room for one emotion in their bodies at the time they're so small they're so small they can only have one feeling and they feel it with their whole bodies yep (laughs) and what she feels now is sad because peter really doesn't remember her It's very cool to watch her and uh, Julia Roberts as Tinkerbell is more convincingly tiny in this movie than like any of the Ant-Man characters are in any of their movies (laughs) because what they did was they built these gigantic sets for Julia Roberts to act in as Tinkerbell that looked convincingly like a dollhouse blown up or a lantern blown up or a clock blown up or a bottle blown up. They put a lot of effort into like making her look teeny tiny. And giving her that space to act in. And it works. Because, like, you, at no point are you like, that's tiny Julia Roberts. You're just like, oh, that's Stinkerbell. Oh, yeah. And, like, the dollhouse in particular looks like a dollhouse. There's even some, like, mismatched Barbie doll style dolls in this dollhouse that don't match the furniture or the proportions of the room. (laughs) Yeah, they're just big mannequins and they're so good. Even the weave on the tiny carpet that she's lying on is big and chunky. And they do the thing where. Peter's like, this is ridiculous. I don't believe in fairies. And she's like, don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that, man. Every time someone says, I don't believe in fairies, there's a fairy somewhere that falls down dead. And Peter, being an asshole, is like, I don't believe in fairies. (laughs) And she does this big dramatic collapse, falling down the stairs of the dollhouse. (laughs) I don't think she's actually, like, it's possible that she's actually dying here. It's possible she's taking the piss. Either way, it's good. Mm Mm-hmm. She is just doing this big dramatic collapse, and he's like, oh my god, I killed her. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and then she instructs him to clap his hands if he believes in fairies to save her life. Another callback to more from the, the play. play than the book. That's from the play. You do that. The kids in the audience will have to clap because they believe in fairies to bring Tinkerbell back to life. <laughs> and then the adults end up doing it too. <laughs> because you have to bring Tinkerbell back to life. Yeah. It doesn't work as well in the book. No. But it works really effectively in the play. There was a Peter Pan movie back in like the aughts, I think, where in order to try and translate that, they had a big thing where like all the lost boys and all the kids are like trapped and they're all chanting extremely loud. I do believe in fairies. I do. I do. as like this big dramatic thing to bring Tinkerbell back. Does not quite work. No, but it is at least an attempt at translating the energy of an audience because there's very little that can. Yeah. And so, Peter claps despite himself because he doesn't want a fairy's death on his hands. (laughs) He is so drunk. (laughs) And Tinkerbell, who, by the way, has, like, superhuman strength, she can just punch things with regular force. She can punch things with the full force of a Julia Roberts. Yeah. She knocks him out. He falls back onto a blanket, which she gathers up into, like, a little knapsack, like a little bindle. And it's just like, all right, buddy, let's go. Off we go. (laughs) And she flies off, trailing fairy dust the whole way. And there's a kissing couple on a bridge with, like, the clock tower from Parliament up in the background, Big Ben. And as she flies over them, the fairy dust filters down on them and they start floating because they have happy thoughts. And that's actually Carrie Fisher and uh, George Lucas. Yeah. Also, the thing about the happy thoughts is it's kind of funny that so many adaptations take that at face value because in the book... When they ask Peter how he flies and he says, oh, I just think happy thoughts and lift me into the air, he is taking the piss. (laughs) (laughs) He says that and then they try and he's like, ha ha, I'm just f***ing with you. You need fairy dust. So it's good that it's in this movie because it serves a very important narrative function that happy thoughts make you fly. But it is funny to me that that keeps being taken at face value in every Peter Pan adaptation. It's a bit like how in the original A Visit from St. Nicholas, they're like laying a finger aside of his nose, giving a nod of the chimney he rose. And what people tend to interpret that is like Santa has to like purposefully poke his nose and that makes him go up the chimney. But it, it, it's just a gesture to be like, ah, we are co-conspirators as he is tapping his nose as a gesture to the narrator, the father. Don't worry about it, y'all. And we fly into Neverland. Which, oh God, the matte paintings in this movie are so f***ing gorgeous. Okay, you know what my favorite thing is about the Neverland in this movie? What's up? Is that the water is clear. You can see very far into the seawater. It's a beautiful blue. And also it is just a facet of the landscape as a topographical thing that there is a compass rose with a big <laughs> end pointing north in the landscape, in the water. And it's my favorite. Oh yeah, the compass rose is absolutely fantastic. I love that so much. And I think there's even, like, some kind of feature underwater where it almost makes a rectangle, like, barrier around the edges of Neverland. You never quite see that clearly, but the compass rose is there in the sea, and I love it. (laughs) Peter wakes up with the world's worst hangover, rips a hole in the blanket, and the first thing he sees is a clock, which (laughs) is spinning wildly. And then he rips it open further, and he sees that the clock is being held in the mouth of a gigantic taxidermy crocodile. And then he rips it open further to reveal the most gorgeous renfair style Pirate Town set I have ever seen in my life. Ugh, like most of Act Two was shot on an enormous series of sound stages. And the Pirate set is one of my favorites. There is so much work to make this place as busy and crowded as possible. And every single extra on this set is doing something at any given time oh god hey remember when movies were shot on sets that physically existed (laughs) sometimes it feels really really soundstagey but i also feel like in a movie like hook that is meant to be fantastic and not entirely real i think you can make excuses for that it gives like the environments this sort of dreamlike storybook quality that i'm absolutely fine with Yeah. And also just like the craftsman, like there's so much detail in all of these sets that like, I don't mind that they look kind of cartoony. Mm hmm. Peter wanders through this place and, you know, he's surrounded by a bunch of adults, so he's not entirely like cognizant that something's very different here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, at one point he checks in, but, like, he asks for directions from a really drunk, passed out sailor, and the sailor, of course, does not respond. And Peter's just like, wow, that is so real. Not only do I not think he realizes where he is, I don't think he knows, like, that he's anywhere. I don't think he's cognizant of his surroundings at all. It's like, does he think he's just been, like, dumped into the middle of the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland? Does he just think that parts of London look like this? (laughs) He might. He is distinctly American. He's then accosted by some pirates who are like, those are some very fancy shoes. Which they are. I want him. He's wearing Armani dress shoes. So they immediately like kill him and get me the shoes. At which point Tinkerbell, thankfully, zips in and beats the crap out of all these other pirates. Peter then says, are you related to Mighty Mouse? Which audience, that was a dated reference in 1991 (laughs) when this movie came out. There was like a Mighty Mouse cartoon in the 80s, I think was the most recent Mighty Mouse there was. But generally speaking, Mighty Mouse is a character from like, what, the 30s? Like, I think Fleischer made some cartoons. My main knowledge of Mighty Mouse comes from like the 50s and 60s. Yeah, like he he was, that is, I don't know who he was attempting to reach with that one. I feel like that was an ad-lib line. Robin Williams did a lot of those in movies. Yeah, he's kind of known for it. But they kept it in because somebody thought it was funny. <laughs> and so Tinkerbell beats up some pirates, gives him some of their clothes, and does this like lightning quick coaching him through a disguise and how he is supposed to carry himself to to pretend that he is a pirate <laughs> at one point he growls really loud another pirate like jumps aside and goes hey how are you and he's like oh not bad you not bad and they just <laughs> keep going it's very good like, to Peter's credit, he follows along so fast. He's like, Your left arm hangs down, you should try dead. And he instantly just like. He yes ands his way through this entire thing. Yeah, it's so good. We cut from him to something happening nearby, which is a wet zone where a hook is being sharpened. <laughs> oh, it's so good. The hook gets put on like a velvet pillow, and Smee, like, Smee, who is the bosun of the Jolly Roger, who is Hook's ship. He's basically Hook's henchman throughout this entire movie. Played by Bob Hoskins. Bob Hoskins is here and everything is better now. Everything's so good now that Bob Hoskins is here. Everything was already fun, but now it's even better because Bob Hoskins is here. (laughs) And he leads a parade as a bunch of pirates follow behind the hook, chanting, here's the hook. Hook, hook, give us the Hook. (laughs) Hook, give us the hook. Yeah, as they head towards the Jolly Roger. (laughs) Hook, hook, give us the hook. And Smee brings the hook up to a darkened closed room and you see a brief flash in the darkness of a hook being attached to the base of a wrist. There's like sparks in everything. So good. And then Smee is back outside and he's doing Robin Williams bit from Good Morning Vietnam. (laughs) Good morning, Neverland. (laughs) It is so referential. I love it. And he's like, Hook's hype man for the next two minutes, says a bunch of things the pirates don't necessarily understand, like a man so deep he's almost unfathomable. (laughs) At some point, when he tries another one, they all laugh and he's like, yeah, there you go, thank you. (laughs) And then Hook comes out and everyone's very excited, as am I. Oh, he looks so great. Because it's Dustin Hoffman as Captain Hook. Dustin Hoffman and Bob Hoskins have the same kind of, like, incredible energy in this movie that the Sanderson sisters do on the set of Hocus Pocus. It is that, like, these are actors in their prime, and they're having a ton of fun just being here. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. It's, these are some extraordinarily good actors who have been given full license to be cartoons, and oh, boy, are they rolling with it. Oh, man, like... Hook's very first line in this movie is he raises his arms as the crowd just adulates and turns to Smee and Smee's like, see how the men favor you, sir? And he immediately comes back with the puling spawn, how I despise them. Oh, he's good. (laughs) Like they wrote Hook's dialogue as someone who is an erudite. He has (laughs) such linguistic flair. (laughs) He turns to his men and he says, Well, my stupid, sorry, parasitic sacks of entrails, revenge (laughs) is mine. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. I love him. So Hook is building up into this speech about how he's gearing up to have his big war with the Lost Boys. He's going to bring Peter Pan back. He went into the other world, stole Peter's children. Now they're here. It's only a matter of time until Peter Pan shows up. Oh, but who didn't believe I could do it? And Peter's immediately like, ah crap. And Hook points out into the audience. There's a stranger amongst you who doesn't believe in me. And he points and he's like, You. And like half the people in the crowd point to themselves. <laughs> and then <laughs> Hook wades into the crowd and starts scattering them aside. Not you, not you, not you, not you, you. And it comes down between Peter and some other guy, the other guy being Glenn Close and Drag. <laughs> <laughs> For no evident reason, it's Glenn Close and Drag. <laughs> She said, hey, Steven, I want to do a cameo in your movie. And he's like, unfortunately, there's not a lot of women in this movie. Do you want to be a pirate? Yeah, she's like, that's not a problem, actually. (laughs) She's got like a beard and everything. She looks great. Yeah. Dustin Hoffman, by the way, like Dustin Hoffman in full hook regalia, getting close to you and like threatening Glenn Close about how Glenn Close's character didn't believe he could do it. And bet against him. Ugh. The pirate starts crying and Hook sentences the pirate to the boo box. Which I believe I referenced at one point in Gem Jammer. I assume so. I mean, it's Hook. There's a lot of Hook in Gem Jammer. But yeah, the boo box is a great big chest that they shove Glenn Close into and then drop scorpions into. We never see this boo box again. We have to assume that over the three days this movie takes place during... Glenn Close is still in the boo box. We never see Glenn Close removed from the boo box. We can only assume that she's still in there. If we open the boo box, until we open the boo box, Glenn Close is simultaneously both in the boo box with scorpions and not in the boo box. No word yet on the scorpions. <laughs> the scorpions are extra quantum. It doesn't matter. The scorpions will be there no matter what. It is Glenn Close we're worried about collapsing the possibilities on. so after we finish with the boo box the children get hoisted they are wrapped up in this net that is being hoisted up over one of the masts Peter immediately blows his cover just instantly It's just instantly screams those are my kids and throws off his disguise like to his credit at least he's trying here I can't guarantee that I would not do the same thing in his situation. This, people like to complain about movie characters doing irrational things, but like movie characters are just people. They don't know they're in a movie. They don't know what the optimal course of action is. They just react the way they're going to. Of course, as we said, Peter's cover is blown immediately and he is captured, brought over to Hook, who they have this like a back and forth patter here where he just does not believe this is Peter. This is Peter Pan, his great and worthy opponent. And it's like, no, yes, no, yes, no. That it's like impossible to replicate. He calls Smee over to show the paperwork. There's an affidavit by a T-Bell along with his medical records. Oh, God, and Peter doesn't believe he's Peter Pan, so he's not helping whatsoever. <laughs> and then they figure out what they really need to do to prove that this is him. Show him the scar. I want to see my scar. This is referred to as the scar that Peter got during the Tiger Lily incident, which would be the like bit from the book and the play at the Mermaid's Lagoon where Tiger Lily is rescued from the pirates and then Peter faces off against Hook and one of the things that happens is that Peter realizes he has the higher ground on this rock that he's dueling Hook on so he concedes the higher ground and Hook responds by immediately hitting him with the hook. (laughs) Most adaptations show him getting hit in the arm but having him get hit in the gut is also fine. It's not explicitly pointed out. Peter also is like, oh, you mean my appendix scar, buddy? (laughs) Buddy, appendix scars are not a big, nasty, like, dark red thing that extends across your stomach. (laughs) It's just very badly done surgery. There's a bit that I really like from the book in that scene, by the way, where after uh, Peter gets hit with the hook, it's described as the shock of a child experiencing his first unfairness, which Peter experiences perpetually because he has the memory of a goldfish. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, the first unfairness that a child experiences, where once you've treated them unfairly, they'll still love you, but it'll never be the same again. Also have noticed that Hook has these readers on to peer at the scar and this paperwork. I like the reading glasses. (laughs) They're so good. (laughs) They're so f***ing good. At one point, Peter tries to pull out a checkbook and bribe Hook, uh, at which point Hook shoots through the checkbook and hits one of the pirates standing behind it. (laughs) (laughs) And the pirate just falls down dead. Oh, it's so good. There's a lot of slapstick in this movie that like, I think I've talked about this before on this show, but there's a lot of slapstick in this movie that's typical to 90s movies that would later, like it's the same comedic shorthand that would later be replaced by like the Joss Whedon style quips in like the mid 2000s to now. That's where the slapstick comes from. It's just the thing you do in a scene to make it kind of funny that you would later just drop a pop culture reference to do the same job. It's also, like, just a good way to quickly tell you exactly what kind of level of violence we're expecting here, which is, like, anyone who actually knows, like, Peter Pan should know what to expect here because it is all a great game. Yeah. But, like, it is good to tell the audience, yeah, you can just shoot a pirate. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah, it's boring. People like to talk about how, oh, how gruesome and violent Peter Pan really is. People get killed and maimed and violence occurs all the time. And I was like, yeah, but it's like it's cops and robbers violence. It's a game. Kids just like playing at killing each other. Yeah. yeah. And like, like, I love that, like, that is how Hook always refers to it is he wants a war. And by that, I don't mean that he wants like a prolonged, like, land dispute that will last four years and leave millions dead. He wants a war like a big fight. Yeah. He wants a big rumble between him and the Lost Boys. So Hook makes a deal, he says, that he will let Peter go home with his kids. They hoist the net up. If he can fly up and reach his kids and just touch their hands. They can leave. They can leave. Whether he would have actually followed through on this, probably not. But that's the challenge set before him. And Peter whispers in his ear. And of course, Peter has a problem with heights. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Peter whispers and Hook's ear and Hook is like, ah, Peter Pan has a problem with heights. And everyone has a good laugh over it. He pitifully starts climbing the mast and he's like, could someone give me a hand? And Dustin Hoffman just turns to the pirates and says, I already have. Because <laughs> uh, of course, Peter's the one who cut off his hand. Peter cut off his hand and fed it to the crocodile. For people who, for whatever reason, are not familiar with Peter Pan. I feel like that's nobody, but here we are. Oh, and it's just, it's the fact that he's just such a petty little bitch about it. Yeah, he's just a bitch. It's good. I mean, there's something to be said for sympathetic villains. And then there's also something to be said for villains who are just awful people with a lot of charisma. (laughs) Which is absolutely what Hook is. Hook is irredeemable. That's the point of him. Yeah. As he starts climbing and he gets up to the level where his kids are and he starts like scooting across the mast, it starts to sink in for Hook. It's like, why isn't he flying? What? this isn't a game, is it? And Smee says that Peter's been away from Neverland too long and that his mind has been gentrified. Well, that's what the subtitles said. I'm not sure that's what the line actually is. What is the line, do you think? I don't know, but I the way he said it, it does not sound like gentrified quite. I don't know. Like There's a U in there somewhere. I don't know. It might be like Smee doing a malaprop. Because that's kind of what he does later. And gentrified is a very complex word for him. The point is, Peter can't reach his kids. And Hook is like, well, this is f***ing pointless. <laughs> oh my god. There's this moment where, like, the kids are reaching out their hands. And they're like, you just have to reach. You just have to try. Please. Please. And he can't even extend his hand. He is too afraid. And he just stares at them. Devastated. It's really affecting. Ugh.
1: It is. It's so good.
0: And then Hook is like, all right, just kill them. <laughs> kill just, them all. Just kill them all. And we, I guess we won't have a war. Oh. What a war. He's really petulant about this. <laughs> Peter is grabbed and tied up and is made to walk the plank. And then Tinkerbell once again comes to Peter's rescue and faces off against Hook and... These two are acting off of each other really well, considering that neither of them is actually here. Yeah, there's definitely a point where they do one of those things like they used to do with like they have filmed Julia Roberts and they just basically have a large projection of a close up of Hook here for her to look in the eye. These two are acting off of each other really well. Dustin Hoffman especially is very effectively menacing towards this non-existent fairy that he's acting off of. And what's interesting is that it feels like Tinkerbell and Hook regard each other much more as peers here. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) They have been through some shit. (laughs) They're basically the only two grown-ups on the island. Yeah. And they strike a deal. Tinkerbell has three days to get Peter Pan back in shape to uh, lead the Lost Boys in a war against the pirates, at which point the war will happen. And those are the conditions of the deal. There's even a great scene where they shake Hook and tiny hand. Ugh, love it. And then while they do that, Peter accidentally gets knocked off the plank and almost drowns. (laughs) (laughs) Into the water he goes... The mermaids come to rescue him because the mermaids have always liked him. They don't like anyone else, but they like him. They like Peter. They like Peter. They're charmed by him. They all give him some oxygen, which of course they do by kissing him. Naturally. But the sound effects are very clearly like a, like you hear air flowing. So you're like, oh, it's fine. They're not just making out with him before he dies. They're helping (laughs) him. And then they shove him into a uh, half a scallop shell and have him hoisted up towards what we later find out is where the Lost Boys are camped out. It's an enormous treehouse. Now, I initially thought that what the deal was here is in the book, after Wendy and John and Michael and the rest of the Lost Boys leave, the fairies lift up the house that the Lost Boys had built for Wendy and put it in a tree. And that's where Peters hang out. So I thought this was an expansion of that idea. But then we later go to a place that is explicitly stated to be the house that the Lost Boys built for Wendy and it was burned down and it's at ground level. So I don't know what's true, but they live in a tree house and it's very cool. I get the feeling that like this is a tree that it's grown up in and around where that was maybe over time. That would make sense because in the underground home where the Lost Boys were living before Wendy came along and where they are, like, Wendy stays in that house the first night and then she sleeps below ground with the rest of the Lost Boys, like, for the rest of the book, pretty much. Right. They have a tree growing in the middle of their living room. Basically, they cut it down every morning. And then by about 2 p.m., it's high enough to use as a table, so they have their tea time there. And then they chop it off again before bed. So there's this tree perpetually growing in the house that, if left unattended, would probably just grow up through the house and result in what you're looking at now. I could see that. We get this moment here where Peter gets out of the scallop shell and just looks over the beautiful vista of Neverland, and it is so gorgeous again. So good. The matte paintings in this movie are so good. They glow. They're luminous. Ugh, like... It is beautifully lit. There is a big rainbow. There are beautiful waterfalls. It looks like a fairyland. And then he trips and falls into a bunch of snow and penguins. Yeah, they have snow for all their winter games. Yeah, because it's whimsy now. It's whimsy. It's time for like a solid hour of whimsy. There's almost an overabundance of whimsy. Just fraying at the edges sometimes. (laughs) Peter wanders through, gets caught in a snare, and is carried up a couple of stories, I think, until he ends up upside down outside of a little clock house where Tinkerbell lives. Yeah, that's Tink's new apartment. The old one got burned down for reasons we'll later find out. Quick thing about Tinkerbell and Hook both being here. In the book, Hook was eaten by the crocodile, so I'm assuming in this version of the story, either he wasn't or he got better. And Tinkerbell in the last chapter of the book, it's mentioned the next time that Wendy comes back to Neverland that Tink has died of old age because fairies don't live very long. And in this case, Tink just didn't die or she got better. It's the kind of universe where they died, but they got better is perfectly plausible. Yeah, again, it's a big game. It's cops and robbers. Bang, bang, you're dead. Yeah. So Tinkerbell was sleeping in her house. She was, she just left. She just left. She just left. Peter got knocked into the water and she couldn't fish him out. So she was like, you know, it's probably fine. And she went back to her house with the last boy. She does this a lot. She just kind of checks out for large portions of the movie. It's just like, eh, I can't do anything about this. So I'm just going to go. It'll be fine. And she's even like, oh, you're alive. (laughs) she didn't even know he was okay she just left she's pleasantly surprised i guess the mermaids just were like all right i mean i guess what do we do with them i guess we just take him to the lost boy tree into the tree with you that's where you go <laughs> like putting a little bird that fell out of the nest back yep pretty much they're like this isn't where you go that's where you go <laughs> so tanger bell cuts him down and then she just flies around the tree, flying into all these little treehouse beds and waking up the Lost Boys because Peter's back. God, I love the costume designs of these Lost Boys because you can tell what era they're from. Because like the deal with the Lost Boys is that all the little boys who have like fallen out of their prams or otherwise, you know, escaped from their nurseries, I guess would be the, the extension of that. If they're not claimed in seven days and the fairies take them to Neverland. And so, like, you can see, like, costumes that are, like, clearly out of, like, the 50s and 60s. You can see kids in, like, outfits from earlier than that, later than that. It's it's pretty good. We'll hear very few names of the Lost Boys, and indeed many of them are just credited as Lost Boy. But there are some of these kids that have names, many of which are, in fact, from the book, as I recall. Um... Actually, none of them are. None of them? Really? These are all new ones because all of the original Lost Boys went back with Wendy at the end of the book oh, and okay. and got adopted. So they all ended up like Toodles. So like uh, the ones from the book, I think are like the Twins, Toodles, Slightly, and Nibs that went. And then these guys are all new. Okay. Okay. Well, in that case, I just want to name some of these names of these Lost Boy kids. They're very good. There's Toodles, Pockets, Ace, Thudbutt. Don't Ask, Too Small, Latch Boy, No Nap. And, of course, as we'll get to later, Rufio. Yes. What good names, though. <laughs> they are very good names. I want to know how Don't Ask got his name, but I know I'm not supposed to. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So the Lost Boys start streaming out of their houses. They come into all these different areas to witness this middle-aged man who is apparently Peter Pan, their hero. And that's when they start yelling, Bangarang. bang-a-rang. Yeah, which is a new thing for this movie, but we like it. We like it. We like Bangarang. We understand Bangarang. <laughs> we like Bangarang as a war cry. Bangarang! It's going to be Bangarang from here on out. Yeah, it's good. It's all good. And they're like, oh, that ain't Peter Pan. He's an old fat grandpa man. (laughs) And then we hear a horn and we hear the sounds of, I guess, a wind skateboard? (laughs) A windsurfing skateboard on a track. And here comes Rufio. It's Dante Bosco, a.k.a. Zuko. In just, oh, this outfit. He's got, like, a crop shirt and, like... A huge vest with tassels, his hair is in this enormous mohawk with red stripes. The costume designer of this movie heard, you're doing The Lost Boys, and just like salvaged some costumes from the vampire movie The Lost Boys, <laughs> and they put Tante Pasco in that. <laughs> this is basically like, this was definitely a crush I had as a kid, and it's hard not to be a little kid with a crush on Rufio, frankly. He's the cool one. He has a sword. He's the cool one. He's the cool one. He is the leader of the Lost Boys in absentia of Peter Pan. And he has Peter Pan's sword. And he immediately is like, that's not Peter Pan, my dude. Like, Rufio has such charisma. You can see why he leads the Lost Boys. He is the coolest, the oldest. And again, he has a windsail skateboard and a sword. And great big red mohawk streaks through his hair. Yeah. And some killer makeup. Extensive eyeshadow. And Rufio takes a look over at Peter Pan and he taunts Peter with the sword. And he's like, who's in charge here? And as one, this entire crowd of little boys points at Rufio. <laughs> <laughs> and he does this little sarcastic bow. And Peter's like, ah, shit. No, no, not really. No. I want to talk to a grown up. And everyone's like, all oh, the grown ups are pirates. We kill pirates. And he's like, but I'm a lawyer. Kill the lawyer. <laughs> and so we go through this whimsical chase scene throughout the Lost Boys thing. As Peter says, wait, I'm not that kind of lawyer. <laughs> Tinkerbell is desperately trying to catch the ears of various Lost Boys as they chase after Peter and be like, no, 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 listen, I have a plan for this. <laughs> And that is just like a whimsical chase scene for the next five minutes as Peter just gets chased all over the Lost Boys hideout. There's a threatening skate park half pipe because it's 1991. There's a lot of skateboards, a lot of basketball, there's a lot of graffiti. It was the 90s. There are threatening acrobats. <laughs> They're shooting arrows at him, but the arrows are tipped with like, you know, guck. It's goo. It's just gack. Which I think is edible because I'm pretty sure that's part of what they have for dinner later. Yeah, they might be eating that later. There's a flower that sniffs you. There's a bunch of flowers that sniffs you and then one of them sneezes. Eventually, they catch up with him at the skate park basketball court. You can do both at the same time. It's fine. It's not a safety <laughs> problem. And Rufio draws a line in the sand and it's like, you can't fly, fight or crow. Anyone who believes he's not Peter Pan cross the line and come over to my side. Peter is the first one across the line. Tinkerbell drags him back and he's like, I'll be back in a minute. Yeah, Tinkerbell's like, you're embarrassing me. (laughs) All the kids cross over except for the tiniest lost boy whose name is Pockets. He's like the Cindy Lou Who who's no more than two of the lost boys. He's so little and he starts like, you know pressing on Peter's face, trying to smooth out the wrinkles. And then once he finally like manages to pull Peter's face into a smile, it's this very, very good delirium and saying, oh, there you are, Peter. And a bunch of the other kids come back over. And like, they all just sort of start pawing at his face and like inspecting him and being like, oh my gosh, yeah, no, I see it now. What happened to you? And like, It's, I'm not going to say it's not effective, but it's also very Spielberg, very schmaltzy. It's deeply schmaltzy, but also (laughs) this is a movie where pirates fight Lost Boys, so. Exactly. They kind of run back and forth a little, arguing whether or not he could be Peter. Pockets is like, well, he could be, why don't we give him a chance? Why else is he here? He doesn't look like he wants to be here. Who are those kids? Yeah, who are those kids that Hook's got? By the way, if you try to watch this without subtitles, it's very difficult to understand what Pockets is saying. His voice is so piping. (laughs) Pockets is like, he is basically, he is what we would scientifically categorize as Whittle. He's small. He's very Whittle. He's baby. He's wee. (laughs) He's not as big as Medium Jock, but bigger than Wee Jock Jock. Yes. (laughs) But anyway, they decide that they're going to, at least some of the Lost Boys decide that they are going to help Peter Pan get back into shape and get his kids back. It does not immediately lead into an exercise montage, but the next time we see these characters, they're in an exercise montage. We do go briefly back here to the Jolly Roger, where Hook is having an existential crisis. He has this! (laughs) having a depressive episode. (laughs) Can we just talk for a second about Hook's incredible, opulent, French Rococo goth bedroom? (laughs) Oh my god, I want to live in the sets for this movie. I do too. Please. Also, like, this is, of course, where the captain's quarters are. This is in the aft of the ship, because that's typically where that is. But the aft of the ship is also in the shape of a gigantic skull with, like, the eye sockets as these big paneled windows. Oh, it's so good. Ah, It's like, it, it's so opulent in here. He has a bed that comes down from the ceiling and it's four poster. And Hook is like, feeling sorry for himself because this is obviously the worst decision he's ever made. He's deciding that his life is over. And finally, he like has he's like, oh, I've had this moment of perfect clarity that goes and fetches a pistol and holds it to his own head. And the first thing out of Smee's mouth is, oh, not again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Smee tries to be like, all right, Captain, it'll be fine. We'll get a war. Why don't I get you some nice snacks from this incredible buffet we have over here? And he just starts eating it himself. And then it's like, oh, no, not again. <laughs> and he's like, oh, no. I'm, gover- I'm really going to do it. Don't try to stop me, Smee. Don't you dare try to stop me this time, Smee. <laughs> Don't you dare ever get over here and try to stop me, Smee. Smee, try to stop me. <laughs> try to stop me. Get off your ass over
1: here and stop
0: me. That's very good. You get the feeling this happens like once a week. Yeah, if not nightly, at least once a week. Because he is just so incredibly overdramatic. He's so melancholy. speak <laughs> so gets over. He rests the gun from his hand. It fires into his perfect topological recreation of Neverland into the Jolly Roger, which lights on fire. <laughs> and Hook looks at Smee and he's like, don't ever scare me like that again. What are you, some kind of sadist? <laughs> This is such a, this is such a bizarrely complex relationship. Like, look, it is not a given that Smee and Hook have any kind of, like, relationship beyond, like, supervillain and Toadie, but this Smee and Hook are 100% either married or they were in a relationship for a really long time. They're either married or divorced. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But they are attached at the hip until they die. Yep. Or at least until Smee abandons him later in the movie. You know, you'll get that. You'll get that. It's also in the scene that we get our first mention of. Yes. They're referred to as Indians. They're referred to in the book by a lot of words that I can't say here. There are specifically indigenous Americans on the island in Neverland. I say specifically indigenous Americans because they were referred to by names that are used for indigenous Americans that, again, I can't repeat on this show. It's a lot of things that sounded super cool at the time, but are in fact slurs. Some Rudyard Kipling-ass bullshit, anyway. Yep. And pretty much, aside from these lines here, mentioning them and the Tiger Lily incident, they do not show up in this movie. We do not have to talk about them. Yeah, ever since basically the 60s, every Peter Pan adaptation has been like, how do we sensitively portray this racist-ass bullshit? J.M. Barry put it in his book? And the answer in this case was, they're just not here. (laughs) They're not in this movie. (laughs) They're doing other stuff. It's kind of like how if you go on the Peter Pan ride at Disneyland, Disney World, there used to be some little models of the indigenous Americans that had the, you know, the racist caricatures from the movie. They just removed those, and they just kept the little, like, the teepee buildings, and they just were like, that's good enough. You know they're there. We don't have to look at them. <laughs> Woofadoofa. On the one hand, it was a children's book from 1911. On the other hand, even in 1911, there were people being like, that's not okay. Yeah. Yeah, little kids will play cowboys and Indians for a really long time in history, and... <sighs> Oof. But yeah, I do recall that when WB did their prequel movie called Pan, they decided that they were going to cast Rooney Mara as Princess Tiger Lily and have the, quote, Indians be just like natives of the island who are multicultural, and that didn't work either. Ooh. So I don't have a correct answer for how to sensitively portray this racist ass bullshit that JM Barry put in his book. It may just be their correct decision to be like, they're not here. Yeah, yeah. I definitely remember quick aside, I remember playing Kingdom Hearts Birth by Sleep, and one of the worlds you go to in that one is Neverland. Oh boy. And I remember being like you go there and you're like oh we're tracking this one guy i think we saw him over by the indian village and the fear that gripped my heart in that moment wondering how japan was gonna do this oh god the abject terror what am i about to see <laughs> empty village <laughs> empty village just a boss fight with some an original character who is oh god yeah no it was completely unrelated just an empty village and i was like oh okay <laughs> Could have been worse. Maybe still not the correct decision. Yeah. Yeah. That is the lesser of the evil I was expecting. Oh, God. Anyway. Anyway. One of the things that Hook says in here is a line that we'll hear a lot, which is actually really important to Peter Pan in general, which is, Hook says, well, death is the only great adventure I have left, Smee. I'm so tired. And then he also talks about wanting to die as saying, I want to go Betty bye And maybe he talks about sleep. Maybe he's talking about the eternal sleep. We don't know for sure. He wants to go Betty bye He's a very Shakespearean man. Don't worry about it. (laughs) But like, we'll hear death as a great adventure regularly throughout this. Smee comes up with this plan. He's like, hey, wouldn't it be kind of sick if like you got Peter Pan's kids to love you instead of him? And then once he persuades Hook that it's a good idea, Hook is like, I came up with the best idea, Smee. <laughs> <laughs> like, it is a instant, like, you made this?
1: No, I made this.
0: I made this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's the plan. He's going to make the kids love him instead of Pan. And it'll be super sick, nasty, twisted. <clears throat> We cut back to a whimsical training montage with the Lost Boys as they're like, "Beep bangerang, old man!" <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of jogging with like, lost boys hanging onto his legs, stuff like that. There is at some point they're like, "Now for a flying lesson, think a happy thought as we load you into this oversized slingshot. It's so good. There's like,
1: "My happy thought is not being in this slingshot." <laughs>
0: <laughs> it is apparently not sufficient. No, he just plummets. He plummets into, like, the Nickelodeon (laughs) Gak that they just have a lot of in this movie. Oh my god, god. It's like, it is like Play-Doh yellow, blue, and like, magenta. And the worst part is that when he careens into this Gak, we find out that that was only the surface layer, and it is this disgusting, dirty green underneath. I don't know (laughs) if that's on purpose, but oh god. It's gross. It's really gross, actually. The important thing, though, is that that scene's over, and now we can cut back to hook lessons as he. Hook lessons? He's pulled up a couple of French Rococo writing desks (coughs) and plopped these kids down into it with a chalkboard. And he says, Lesson one why parents hate their children. (laughs) Uh, And Maggie, being, you know, a child is like, no, my parents are lovely. Mommy reads to us every night before bed. And Hook is like, they do that so you go to sleep and they can spend time together without having to worry about you whining all the time. Your parents were happier before you were born. And he flunks Maggie, who gets an F, who already has a panic attack about getting an F, despite the fact that she's like six. <laughs> they, I'm pretty sure they don't flunk six-year-olds. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure it's like physically impossible for a six-year-old to get an F. And I love that, like, throughout this whole scene, and indeed throughout this whole movie, Maggie is the good daughter who loves Mommy, and Jack is like, this evil gay pirate has some compelling ideas. (laughs) Yeah, I find this evil gay pirate strangely compelling for reasons I won't examine until much later in my life. This better not awaken anything in me. (laughs) by the way, also has some like inside knowledge of of stuff we saw in the first act of the movie. He's like, so your dad didn't go to your baseball game, your really important baseball game. How'd that work out for you? It's unclear how he got this information, but also it doesn't really matter. Yeah, like we have to assume that the scary man who took his baseball that Maggie refers to in like just that one line was like Smee or Hook doing some reconnaissance. But like, it also doesn't really matter how they know these things, because what's important is that they know them. Yeah. Yeah. It's important that they know them, not how. But Jack actually starts getting sort of talked around to the idea that like, Hook will never disappoint you. Your dad has done nothing but disappoint you. And Maggie is forcibly removed from the room as she yells over her shoulder, never let him make you forget mommy and daddy. Find a way to run home, Jack run home! And Jack stares after her like, run home? He's already a bit dazed. I'm not sure if this is Neverland or if he's just had a very trying couple of
1: days.
0: (laughs) It's like the phrase run home means something, which it doesn't right now. We're basically just calling forward to when it will. We're just setting up a thing for later. Don't worry (laughs) about it. I forget. Is this also a scene in which Hook had an attachment that was chalk on his hand, or did yeah, it? he had he put an attachment on his on his hook that wasn't a hook was just a, like a straight spike, and then he put some chalk on it and used that to write on the chalkboard. Spectacular. There's also definitely yeah, it, a point where he like throws his hook into the desk in front of Maggie to make a point, and then just twists his wrist, unlatches it, and Smee just slides another hook on. It's very good. <laughs> Ugh, I love the hook fits. So after Peter's long trying day of getting bullied by children, (laughs) it is now time for dinner. Unfortunately for Peter, it is established within the book that sometimes, instead of actually eating dinner, the Lost Boys will instead play at eating dinner. This is from the book? Yeah, this is from the book. (laughs) Oh, man. Sometimes they eat real food, sometimes it's a game. Peter always seems to be sustained by this, but the other Lost Boys are like, we would like some real food at some point. But they know not to complain too loud. (laughs) Well, instead, what's happening here is that they lift up these steaming trays of absolutely nothing and then like mime eating food for a while. And Peter has had it. Yo, Peter's just so fucking done. <laughs> I have spent an entire day going through a whimsical training montage. Can I just have food, please? I want a burger. I want some coffee. Uh, They're on these long picnic table style things, and he is seated across from Rufio, who just starts insulting
1: him. You are a fart factory. Slug slime sack of rat guts and cat vomit, cheesy scab picked pimple squeezing finger bandage, a week old maggot burger with everything on it and flies on the side.
0: Yeah! yeah, Rufio mercilessly bullies him for like a solid two minutes before Peter figures out what effective insults are. And at that point, his first effective insult is calling him a substitute chemistry teacher. <laughs> Woof. And then he just starts Robin Williamsing it. <laughs> they just start going back and forth and, and then eventually Peter just kicks Rufio's ass for he reads him to filth. He calls <laughs> him a, a single cell paramecium. Yeah, what Bushwick bathroom is this? <laughs> <laughs> and then Just to add insult to injury, or injury to insult as the case may be, he pulls back a big wooden spoon that he has and flicks it at Rufio's face as though there's food in it. And suddenly, there is. You're doing it, Peter! You're doing it! You're playing with us, Peter! (laughs) Yes, Peter is finally capable of imagining all of this awesome food, which is mostly pies, turkey legs, and bowls full of gak. (laughs) And, like, the pies are all, like, the same kind of, like, cyan, magenta, and yellow colors. Like, this just looks like they're eating a whole bunch of, like, gack slime Play-Doh mixture. It's fine. It's mostly there for food fights. Yeah, because then, of course, they have to have a food fight. Yep, naturally. Because they're little boys, they're going to have a food fight. At the climax of the food fight, Peter is up on the table having a lot of fun, and then Rufio palms a coconut, throws it at him, and the coconut basically travels, slows down into bullet time. <laughs> it is the longest flying coconut I've ever seen. It is, it is spinning midair. Like, it is clearly going very fast and very slow at the same time. Uh, and somebody <laughs> so- tosses a sword to Peter, and he cuts the coconut in half. He does a spin as he cuts it. Yeah, it is like a spin, and then there are two halves of the coconut, like, spinning on the table. And, like, everyone stares up at him in awe, and Peter just stares down at the sword because he has no idea what he just did and why. End of scene. Ugh. Rather than cutting back to the pirates just yet, we now cut to a quiet scene in the treehouse as Thudbutt, who, by the way, is maybe the most emotionally affecting of the Lost Boys... Oh, yeah. First of all, this child actor is very good. Yeah. Uh, And secondly, Thudbutt, like, carries a lot of the emotional, like, work that is being done by the Lost Boys as a whole because Thudbutt remembers his mother and she's his happy thought. And he also remembers Tootles. And he also remembers Toodles, and he in fact still has Toodles' marbles. Toodles did actually lose his marbles, and they just have like just a cute little laugh about that. And Peter's like, "Oh, so your happy thought is your mother? I actually can't remember my mother." Uh, Robin Williams and then the actor playing Thudbutt play off each other very well in this scene. Yeah, like I also just like Thudbutt is a character that I think is really interesting, and I thought about a lot on this rewatch because like Thudbutt is a fat kid. He is a little kid who is fat, and in the 90s, that usually means a lot of, like, he's fat jokes. And yeah. while they do some of that, Thudbutt is, like, heavy. He can, like, do a lot more, like, feats of strength and, like, just feats of, uh, I don't know. He sits at the end of a bench, and the bench tilts, and all the kids slide down the bench towards him, then he shoves them back. Yeah. There's physical comedy surrounding it, but also, like... Yeah. A, he seems to be in on the joke a lot of the time, and B, it's never implied that, like, his being fat is a character failing on his part. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, Thud is never treated as though he is stupid or lesser for being a fat kid. And the Lost Boys, while they'll do these physical comedy bits, they never, like, make fun of him for it or anything. Yeah, It is just sort of a facet of his character. It's interesting. Yeah, it is an occasionally funny element of the physicality of his character. Yeah, and like they'll get into some of the slapstick with him, especially in the war at the end of the movie. But those are always played as things where it is like an asset that he has, not like a way to point out that he's fat and make a joke about it. It's not, you know, perfect representation, but it's much better than I expect from this time period. It's a fairly empathetic portrayal of the character. Yeah, and again, like, the actor playing him brings such warmth and kindness to the role. Yeah, a lot of good child actors in this movie. Yeah. This one especially. But yeah, Toodle's lost his marbles, and we end the scene on them laughing about it. Be- and then it's it's night-night for everybody. Yeah, except because it's night-night, it we hear someone... Distantly singing a lullaby, and this is the other remaining song from when this was a musical. This is Maggie, a place somewhere in Pirate Town. Don't worry about it. At the end of Up Here or something, singing a lullaby to nobody. She's not doing a terrific job, but also she's like six. Yeah, yeah, and it's this is the Spielbergiest moment in the movie. For me. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> it yeah it is it just slaps you in the face with the spielberg also the fact that the lost boys hideout is absurdly close to the jolly roger they have a whole ass island they could have put between them but they're (laughs) like right next door to each other yeah they're like all on the west side of neverland yeah maggie has this awkward little song that's a lullaby that their mom sings them sometimes and like jack hears it with and he takes off this pirate hat he's wearing and he's like and my mom saying that. And she's so like, ah, don't worry about that. Tell me more about baseball. <laughs> Is it done on horseback? And meanwhile, there's like pirates who are crying over this lullaby. Hook even comes out and watches this. And there's this like mixed emotion going on in Dustin Hoffman's face as he regards her. And then after the song's over, he just like shoves the pirates away. Side note for when Hook shows up in this scene. In the book, Hook is said to have a cigar holder that lets him smoke two cigars at once. And Dustin Hoffman is holding that cigar holder in this (laughs) scene. It's like a hook attachment, right? Is it another hook attachment or is that like something handheld? I think he's actually holding it in his right hand. Hell yes. But yeah, he has the f***ing cigar holder from the book that like no other adaptation puts in. But it's so good because he's like a bad guy. He smokes two cigars at the same time. (laughs) And after this song's over, it's weird because it's clearly something that seems like it should. This is not a song that really does anything for the narrative. It is simply just here to be a Spielberg moment and maybe make you think about some stuff. But as far as like what it would do in a musical, it doesn't really do anything to affect Peter or give anything to Maggie. It's just sort of a little song. We don't even see Peter react to it later, even though it's supposed to be a song that his wife sings to his children. But, you know... It's just kind of here. It's just kind of here. And now it's time to go night-night. Good night, Neverland. (laughs) Good night, Neverland. And it's three moons? It has three moons. I love that. (laughs) Whimsy! It's whimsical! (laughs) Real quick. Hook is woken up by a ticking clock. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Hook wakes up to the sound of a ticking clock, which... You will recall he killed the crocodile and made it into a silent clock, but he still had, this is still a PTSD trigger for him, so he hears a ticking clock. He wakes up. He's convinced the crocodile is here to kill him. Smee has to be the one who's like, we killed that crocodile. There are no clocks. There is no ticking. Oh, wait, there is ticking. And Jack looks at the pocket watch and he's like, Fuck <laughs> <laughs> I love that like the close-up that it does of him like waking up to this ticking is his waxed mustaches start twitching. It's very good. I don't know if Dustin Hoffman has that level of like upper lip control or if it's something that had to do with a bit of wire, but either way, it's very good. Again, it's like it's cartoony and spectacular. And so it's like, okay, great. We have to break this clock now. Let's go to the clock museum. Which as they're showing the clock museum, which is full of smashed clocks. Hook shows off one clock, which he says belonged to Barbecue, and he smashed the clock before gutting him. In the book, Hook is referred to as the only pirate of whom Barbecue was afraid. Ooh. Barbecue is later referred to as the sea cook. Barbecue is Long John Silver. Oh! Oh. Okay. Yeah, Barbecue is Long John Silver. Long John Silver was a cook. hook is said to have been Blackbeard's bosun. It's interesting because I've seen some theorizing over, like, in the book, it's like, hey, if you read Between the Lines, you can probably figure out who Captain Hook is. And some people have done the research and said, Captain Hook might be Blackbeard's bozen slash first mate Israel Hands, because they thought it would be very funny if a man named Hands had his hand cut off and had to refer to himself as Hook instead. I kind of love that. I kind of love that being Izzy Hands. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's a theory. I'm not sure if it's correct, but it is fun. But yeah, barbecue is Long John Silver. Okay. That is dope as hell. (laughs) So Hook is like, all right. You know what little kids love? Violence. You want to do some uh, some metaphorical violence to think about how mad you are at your dad? Your dad who hates you? <laughs> Unlike me. <laughs> and then Jack has a whole cathartic sequence where he smashes the watch, he smashes the other clocks, he purges all the negative emotions that he experienced over his dad. He lists his grievances. Missing his games and also telling him not to blow bubbles in his chocolate milk. There's a range of emotions here. (laughs) The first thing is for never letting me blow bubbles in my chocolate milk, for never letting me jump on my own bed. And then he starts getting into the real shit of for always making promises and breaking them and for never doing anything with me and never even trying to save us. And it's interesting, because Hook is like he couldn't save you. He's like, but he didn't even try. And it's interesting that Hook is the one who brings up the distinction of like he was incapable of saving you. And Hook's like, "Jack, have I ever made a promise that I didn't keep?" And it's like, "Well, he hasn't really made any. It's only been about 24 hours. But you know what? Let's listen to the old gay pirate." Yeah, let's see where this goes. He's your new dad. This is your new dad. <laughs> Want to play some baseball? Pirate your, baseball. Your new dad loves going to your baseball games. <laughs> So now we have a pirate baseball game. (laughs) (laughs) We enter the pirate baseball game from the perspective of Peter and the Lost Boys, who are here dressed up as pirates because they said that Peter needs to steal Hook's hook and then he'll crow like Pan because he did a cool prank. Which tracks. Right. With the character. Then he gets there and he is distracted because it's pirate baseball and Jack's at bat. Yep. Yep. And Peter has, like, this moment of anxiety because Peter also knows that Jack cannot hit a curveball. There's all these little, like, baseball shenanigans of, like, a pirate is stealing base and he gets shot. And (laughs) looks like, no, no, no. Hold on. Bad form. We're doing this by Jack's rules. Nobody gets to shoot somebody. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. Pirates will get this sign that are like, run home, Jack. Run home, Jack. And he's
1: like... Run home? And then Hook's like, no, 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 you got it backwards.
0: (laughs) All right, home run Jack, home run Jack. And he's like, oh, that's right. That's fine. Yeah, no, that's fine. There's this great moment where they shuffle around and then all look down at their signs and then look (laughs) at the signs next to them to make sure that they're in the right order. It's very good. (laughs) Smee is the pitcher. He does this big cartoony wind up. And that's when he's like, oh, my God, he's going to throw a curveball. But Jack hits it. He hits a home run, in fact. That baseball goes away. <laughs> he goes into the stratosphere. That baseball goes to space. And Hook is ecstatic. He is like, that's
1: my Jack! <laughs> I that. And Robin's like, that, that's my Jack. <laughs> I, love, I love this goofy reading of like,
0: my Jack. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> so Peter, instead of stealing the Hook, goes and has a mope. Yep, he has to go have a sad about it, because that's not his jack anymore. But that's supposed to be his jack. Also, when the Lost Boys came into the, to the pirate town, they were all stacked on top of each other in trench coats, which I feel is worth mentioning because it's very good. Oh, I miss that detail. That makes me so happy. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> that's how you look like a grown-up. That's how you look like a grown-up. That's how you sneak into the pirate town. You stand on each other's shoulders and wear a big coat. Exactly. Foolproof. And the thing is, it's Neverland. It's a big game. It is foolproof. And so Peter goes off to have a sad about it. And by that, he means he's like, well, I really do have to learn how to fly. So he starts just sort of throwing himself at the ground and hoping that he misses. Yeah. At one point, he climbs up onto a big rock and he's like, less is more and climbs down (laughs) onto a smaller rock. (laughs) Does not work. No. Until the baseball that Jack hit into the stratosphere comes back down and conks him in the noggin. (laughs) Collapses forward, the baseball goes into a pool of water. Peter goes to reach for the pool of water and sees his own reflection, but his own reflection of himself back when he was 12, nearly 13, back when he was Peter Pan. And honestly, 12-year-old Peter Pan? Yeah, I can see it, Wendy. (laughs) (laughs) Wendy, understandable. (laughs) This is like, this is an elfin boy. This is the this is a very elf-like boy. And then he looks up and he sees a shadow pointing at something. Because Peter Pan's shadow does that. Because Peter Pan's shadow does that. Peter follows the pointing of the shadow, finds a knot in a, the trunk of a tree with a bunch of names carved in it. Wendy, John, Michael, and Peter. And when he presses the P and Peter, a big secret door opens up. We love a secret door. We love a secret door. Ah, uh, it's a secret door going down into a secret house. <laughs> this is the house that Wendy, they made for Wendy. And Tinkerbell is actually already here and she's in a big poofy blue sparkly ball gown dress and she has big hair. (laughs) It's very 90s hair. It's very 90s. It's very like late 80s, early 90s and that like in between period where the hair was not really shaped, just big. But it's a welcome home party. And Peter starts to remember. He's like, oh, this was Wendy's house. We built it for her. Yeah, Hook apparently burned it down when Peter didn't come back that last time. Which can you imagine how horrifying that was? Yeah, he digs around and he starts. Yeah, he pokes around and he's he's like, "Hey, this is where jo- where this is where Wendy would sit and you know darn our socks, and then this is where Michael would sleep because Wendy wanted a baby, so he had to sleep in the basket." That's also from the book. Here's the thimble kiss. Tinkerbell Bell is standing over next to a pair of spectacles that are probably John's, and he finds an old well-loved teddy bear that he says, oh, it's my tatty. And then he remembers. He remembers his own mother. He remembers hearing his mother talking about the future he was going to have, and he didn't want to grow up, so he ran away as a newborn. And hey, folks, just to remind you, this mother is, in fact, Kelly Rowan, the mom from Cyberbully. <laughs> <laughs> Dear God. Yeah, it's all connected. It all comes back to cats eventually, though. Yeah. And then we see Peter in Kensington Gardens, if I'm correct... On the very spot where they would eventually put the Kensington Gardens Peter Pan statue. Yeah, I think it's the exact same spot where he wakes up at the end of the movie after he returns from Neverland, where the statue is. We see little baby Peter and Tink coming and finding him and taking him to Neverland. A nod towards the bits of Peter Pan and Kensington Garden from The Little White Bird. It's wild because he, like, he talks about how he, as a literal infant who can't even look in the mirror and recognize that that is himself that he is looking at, is afraid of growing old and dying. (laughs) So the light breeze rolls the pram away. And I guess, okay. so what you were saying earlier, I guess according to these rules, that means his mom was busy talking about sending her baby to college for seven days. So he just sort of laid there. (laughs) Uh, yeah, that is apparently the rule. Okay. She did not look for him that hard, apparently. <laughs> I guess not. She's just like, oh. Which we later find out was the case, was almost definitely the case, because Peter decides he's going to visit his mom again when he's like five, and he goes to his old house's window, and they've got a new baby. Well, I mean, it's been five years. They had to try again eventually. So this, of course, breaks Peter's heart, and he goes looking at other windows, and then eventually he ends up at the darling's nursery window. Ah. <sighs> And we get to see, of course, that scene where he chases the shadow around the nursery. And then Wendy wakes up and says, boy, why are you crying? And Wendy, by the way, is Gwyneth f***ing Paltrow. That's Gwyneth Paltrow? (laughs) That's baby Gwyneth Paltrow. That's baby Gwyneth Paltrow? Yeah. What the f***? (laughs) Oh, man. Wow, that makes so much sense. She's even got that, like, kind of huskiness to her voice. And then we have the thing that's like, and... What Peter says over a voiceover is that he returned for Wendy always in the spring, which is true because she has to do spring cleaning. Yeah, she comes back for spring cleaning a bunch in the last chapter of the book. But Peter starts forgetting more and more to come back. And the gaps between visits get longer and longer. And the book, he comes back when she's finally a mother. In here, he comes back when she's a grandmother. It's been a while since I read the book, but I think I remember that, like, sometimes he would take Wendy's daughters and, like, granddaughters and stuff, and he would just kind of always call them Wendy. Yeah, the book ends with him taking Wendy's daughter Jane away instead of Wendy herself. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, because, you know, that's just what little boy who never grows up would do. (laughs) But in this case, instead of taking Moira away, who is the granddaughter asleep in the nursery, he decides that he's going to stay instead. Because he's like, oh, girl pretty. Girl, pretty. Also, I really love the detail that like Moira has above her bed, a poster for a hard day's night. Yes. Just to ground this and when this takes place. Yeah, it's good. And I really love Wendy's line here where he's like, oh, I'll give her a kiss. And she's like, no, no buttons, no thimbles. I can't bear for Moira's heart to be broken when she finds out she can't keep you. Says a lot about Wendy. I love this old heartbreak of Wendy. But Peter's like, no, a real kiss. And that essentially breaks the spell of the boy who never grows up. I just, I think about this a lot of like Moira is this character who is pivotal to Peter Pan growing up. He stays for her. Yep. (sighs) And then he is holding his teddy bear and he says, bye, Taddy. Like he's saying goodbye to the teddy bear. And then he's like, wait, Taddy, daddy. I'm not sure I buy this leap of logic, but also it's, it works. There's definitely something weird happening to Peter's memory at this point. But he remembers. He remembers the day of Jack's birth and Moira saying, Peter, you're a daddy. He came back because he wanted to be a dad. And I don't know if a 12-year-old would see a pretty girl and be like, I should be a dad. I'm not sure I follow, but also it's really effective. Yeah. There are a lot of movies about fatherhood, but I don't know if I've ever watched a movie about fatherhood where the dad... Became a father because he really, really wanted to, not just because it was the thing to do, you know? And that's true. Having children is so often treated as like a default thing you do at a certain age. In this case, he didn't have to have kids. He never had to leave Neverland, but he wanted to be a dad. Huh. And there's like, God, there's essays you can write on that. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Peter is thinking and thinking and thinking about being a dad and when his eldest was born. And he comes back to himself and he is floating. <laughs> he found his happy thought. <laughs> he did. And he like, I found my happy thought. Oh, I lost it. And then he starts falling and then he says, no, but I found it again. And it does this cute thing where like it focuses in on his shoes. And as he almost lifts the ground, he like kicks up sort of on the toes like he's breaking, like he's coming to a halt. <laughs> digs his heels into the air and stops and then suddenly he knows what his happy thought is and he puts one hand on his hip one hand straight up into the air and rises up through the tree and into the sky and into a costume change (laughs) into a costume change he is definitely peter pan now he's got the tights he's got a green tunic and he does have shorts john williams is really giving her oh it is a beautiful like triumphant bit here it is it is very effective john williams Yeah, yeah. And he soars through the treehouse and all of the kids follow and like ring the bell and start running after him and celebrating. They kind of rehash a bit of the whimsical chase scene from when he first arrived because Peter can now dunk. (laughs) (laughs) This is the most important piece of his character development. Peter knows how to dunk. (laughs) Rufio appears. He brings the sword But he also falls to his knees and offers his up while whispering, you are the Pan. And I like that Peter Pan is almost like, Pan is almost considered a title sometimes. Yeah, a godlike figure, a mythological figure, because he is. Yeah. And Peter takes the sword and draws that same line in the sand that Rufio did. And all the kids but Rufio cross it. And Rufio sort of seems to muster up some bravado. He's like, you can fly, you can fight, but you can't. And Peter crows in his face. <laughs> it's very good, and Rufio is of course like he doesn't even seem like defeated. He is overjoyed, and everybody starts crowing together. Is crowing is that a thing from the book? Is that just oh yeah, that's a thing from the book. Okay. He crows in the book. Okay, and it is explicitly a cockadoodle do because later on, like Hook refers to it when he hears it as a cockadoodle do. So he's explicitly doing a rooster noise. Okay, dope. It's extremely bangerang if I may say so. <laughs> I shouldn't say so. That night, Peter visits Tinkerbell in her little clock house. And this is a scene that I always think is really just odd. I mean, I sort of get it. Because, like, in the book, it is strongly implied that, like, Tinkerbell is in love with Peter. Oh, yeah, that part, absolutely. It's more the fact that, like, Peter's memory, I don't know if it's just because he is remembered that he is Peter Pan, but it's like he is regressed. And he is now just, like, he is back in, like, a child persona, and it's like his memory is just, like, it's almost like in remembering being Peter Pan, he has forgotten being Peter Banning. That also kind of works, because as I mentioned before, Peter has the memory of a goldfish in the book. Yeah. He forgets very easily because he has the memory of a child. I think what they're trying to do with this is that we have... Peter Banning, who is way too far into the being an adult side of things. He has instead rocketed into the other extreme. Mm -hmm. He is now Peter Pan, who is a child. And what he needs to do is strike a balance between the two, which I think this scene is trying to establish. Okay. Just doesn't do it very clearly. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, I can buy that. That would make sense for what this is here for. Well, anyway, Peter visits Tinkerbell, and Tinkerbell has Peter's MasterCard and driver's license propped up on the wall of her little house, and she's kind of sad about it. Yeah, she's brooding, I guess? Unclear. I mean, whatever emotion she's feeling, she's feeling it with her whole body. Yeah, she only has room for one right now. We're just not sure which one it is. Yeah. And Peter's like, oh, are you feeling sick? We could go put a thermometer in your mouth like the Wendy lady does, and that makes everything better. And Tinkerbell is like trying to jog his memory. She's like, do you remember your next great adventure to save your kids and he's like Peter Pan's got
1: kids
0: (laughs) and then Tinkerbell's clock starts ringing and there's this tremendous light and then it explodes (laughs) yeah because Tinkerbell has wished herself big which is I guess a thing she can do I guess She says it's the only wish I ever wished for myself. I don't think it's ever been established in any universe that Tinkerbell can grant wishes, but I'm rolling with this. (laughs) She's even in like the big blue ball gown from earlier. So she is fancy here. And she's like, oh, Peter, this is the biggest feeling I've ever, ever felt. This is the biggest feeling I've ever had. And this is the first time I've been big enough to have it. And I love that because it is what she is feeling is she is in love with Peter and she is feeling like a multifaceted version of it. And she has to be so big to contain this incredibly big, multifaceted, complex feeling of like that kind of love. As opposed to the very simple possessive love she felt as a fairy, which led her to try to murder Wendy. Like (laughs) repeatedly. And she kisses Peter on the mouth and she says that she loves him. And he mumbles into saying, I love... Moira. <laughs> Which is not what a girl wants to hear right after she kisses a guy. <laughs> he almost says, I love her. Who? More. And she leans in to kiss him again. Like, oh, I think would be more. <laughs> it's like, no, Moira. But no, he loves Moira and Maggie and Jack, his family, who he loves. And he's like, oh my God, my kids. I gotta go save my kids. And he's like, come on, we gotta go. And she just sort of looks at him sadly and is like you'll leave again and go away forever but you have to go and she pushes him off the balcony where he flies and she just gets small again and i i like the idea that she has a big complex version of love because she wants him to succeed but doesn't want him to leave Mm -hmm. yeah that's good also she does call him a silly ass which is what she calls him in the book you know i thought that was a very particular sort of insult and i like that yeah And now we have a scene where the Lost Boys and the Pirates prep for a war because that was the end of night two and we're in day three. This is when it was supposed to happen and Pan was supposed to be back. Meanwhile, though, Jack is getting his ear pierced. He's in full Captain Hook cosplay. (laughs) It's like my dad and me wear the same outfit today. Like complete with the Charles II wig. It's a lot. Oh, yeah. And and he's like, it's a very special time when a pirate gets his first earring. Also, just tilt your head to the side and hold still because this is going to hurt a lot because he's just doing this with his hook. (laughs) Yeah, he's just going to jam his hook through Jack's earlobe, which does not seem sanitary to me, but okay. Or the proper gauge, really. (laughs) Yeah, nope, bad. Not good. I don't think he's even, like, heated that metal to cauterize it. Nope. Nope. It's just gonna hurt a lot. You'll love it. This is not unlike the process of getting your ears pierced at Claire's. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, I'm your dad now. Before he can stick his hook through any cartilage... A sword rips through sailcloth and makes a little silhouette. (laughs) (laughs) And then the silhouette falls to the deck and one of the pirates picks it up and it's literally just a perfect silhouette of Peter Pan. (laughs) There's even like little jagged cuts for the sleeves. Details for the hair, and then they look up to what is now a hole in the sail, a Peter Pan-shaped hole, and Peter just floats up to hover in that hole. (laughs) Yeah, it's like he comes in at, like, he is going along, like, the X-axis to just zoop. (sighs) It's so good. He's doing the pose and everything with the hands on the hips. It's really good. It's so silly. And he's like, all right, great, you're here. Let's do a war now. And Peter's like, it's fine. Let's go home, Jack. And Jack doesn't recognize him and takes a step back and says, I am home.
1: Straight to the heart.
0: Because Hook is his new dad now. Yeah, Hook is my dad now. Hook is my dad now. This cool old gay pirate asked if I wanted to be his son. And I said yes, because I understand what the benefits of that are. (laughs) (laughs) That could be your dad. Hook could be your dad. I can't say I would say no. I wouldn't say no. I know, right? I mean, he'd be an evil villain, but he's straightforward about it. He's an uncomplicated evil villain. <laughs> and Hook just sort of, like, points at Peter. He's like, we're gonna have a war now. And Peter says, dark and sinister man have at thee. <laughs> From the book. I hoped it was. The face-off on the, on the rock where they rescue Tiger Lily. I think it's, like, something and uh, impertinent youth. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what he says. I think that's what Dustin Hoffman says. Prepare to meet thy doom. He says, prepare to meet thy doom. And then Peter Pan says, dark and sinister man have at thee. So that is right from the book, that exchange. I love it. I love it so much. And there is a big fight scene with Peter and a whole bunch of pirates. And they're doing a whole bunch of just like stage fighting and big comical bits. It's fun and cartoony. And at some point, Jack is like, Don't I know him, Captain? And he's like, no, you've never seen him before in your life. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. (laughs) But Peter starts talking to Jack and he's like, hey, I found my happy thought. Do you know what it was? It's you. And he flies up close and he's like, it's you. You're my happy thought. You and Aggie? The other child I have. (laughs) You're my firstborn and another one. Pimber? (laughs) Faramir. <laughs> Bob. <laughs> anyway, Peter gets snagged by a net, and then Peter yells for the rest of the Lost Boys to join the fight. And oh god, oh anarchy! Such whimsy. Such a whimsical fight scene this is. Oh boy. And they're all little boys and they're not doing any like killing stuff. One of them has a bazooka full of eggs. (laughs) There's a bazooka full of eggs with a chicken sitting on top of it. So the chicken has to watch that happen to her potential offspring. She's a chicken. She's barely aware of where she is right now. (laughs) (laughs) There's guns that shoot like paint. There's like a marble Uzi There's a marble Uzi that they just, like, use to trip pirates. And then they're also, like, just genuinely stabbing pirates. Like, that is a thing that is happening. Yeah, they do all have swords. They do all have swords, so they are killing pirates. Rufio shows up, and he's in battle eyeliner. Oh, God. Rufio's in so much makeup. (laughs) And he's having a great time. He's having a grand old time. He goes right for hook. Peter jumps in to be like, no, I fight Hook because Peter is always the only one who fights Hook. All the Lost Boys know that. But then Maggie starts yelling for help and Peter has to run and save her and Rufio and Hook face off. There's a bit where Hook is like watching this whole little whimsical fight with just a palpable disbelief and disgust. And he's like, Smee, just go do something. Don't do something useful. <laughs> Smee, do something intelligent. And Smee runs away. And Smee runs straight <laughs> into the, the captain's corner and he's like, what about Smee? What about Smee? Smee is me. What about me? And then just starts stuffing his pants with treasure. He's just loading up on stuff to steal. Uh, and that's that's the intelligent thing that Smee is doing. And I love that, like, it goes through this whole thing of Maggie is instantly like, Daddy, help me, save me, Daddy, I love Mommy. And Jack is, like, examining this wig. And he's like, wait a minute. I don't think I like cosplay. <laughs> There's a bit where Peter is rescuing Maggie and he crosses swords with a pirate and it's like, wait, ain't you, Peter Pan. And the pirate just puts his sword away and just dives out the window himself. He just leaves. (laughs) He's like, I don't need this, actually. (laughs) He came, he saw, he left. (laughs) The pirates start largely surrendering. And as Rufio and Hook keep fighting, Pan comes flying back in as Rufio catches Hook's sword, says, looky, looky, I got hooky. <laughs> and then Hook stabs him. For some reason, the phrase, looky, looky, I got hooky, has stuck in my brain since the first time I saw this movie as a small child. I know, right? I think about that phrase once a week. I don't know why that like latched itself so firmly into my brain. And oh, by the way, those are almost Rufio's dying words. Those are pretty much <laughs> Rufio's dying words, yeah. Hook just sort of stabs him through. He collapses. Pan flies in, cradles him, and Rufio looks up and is like, I wish you were my dad, Peter Pan. Yeah, he <laughs> says, You know what I wish? I wish I had a dad like you. Just to really drive it home. Just very affecting. Very affecting, and also very fortunate that his last words were not, Looky, looky, I got a hooky." <laughs> Standing right next to him, by the way, and Jack starts apologizing, and I'm not sure why he's apologizing, but I don't know. It's a child's impulse when they feel like they're in trouble. They apologize even if they're not sure for what. Yeah. At some point, there's like Maggie, who's like, "Oh, that's my daddy. That's my daddy. Peter Pan's my dad." Sweet, dope. Like Maggie is all on board with this. Jack is a bit more trouble. Maggie is ride or die for her dad, and I respect that. <laughs> Hook tries to start a fight over Rufio, but there's this moment where Jack and Maggie are both like, Dad, can we go home? We just want to go home. And Peter just turns straight around, picks them up, and starts flying off. Yeah, he's going to leave. And then Hook has to threaten him back by saying, hey, I will keep harassing your family until the end of time if you don't fucking fight me. Maggie at some point is like, you need a mother very, very badly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so peter turns around and he decides yeah he's gonna duel hook the pirates by the way have all just left they're not dealing with this anymore they're gone we're done bye yeah there was this point where like the lost boys all pointed their swords at the pirates the pirates to a man just turned their swords around and, and handed the hilts to the lost boys and then just ran they surrendered they're gone they're done their part in the war is over No, they're not dealing with this. They have been hit with eggs. They have been tripped by marbles. They have had paint shot in their eyes. They're done for today.
1: (laughs) Hey, I've been turned into a cow. Can I go home? You're excused. Anyone else? No, No, we're 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 good. good. good.
0: Get them! (laughs) They're here to just be drunk and uncouth. (laughs) Imagine you're trying to do your drunk and uncouth thing, and then a 12-year-old shoots paint in your eyes and stabs you. You're done for that day. There's a point where Smee like comes out of the captain's quarters, his pants loaded with gold, He is having trouble walking and Hook is like, oh, good, Smee, you're here. Come with me. And he's like, all right. (sighs) (laughs) Just secure your stuff. Finally, Peter Pan and Hook start sword fighting and it is so much fun. It is a very long, elaborate sword duel, and it is very, very good. And it's got some great banter, like Peter saying, I think you used to be bigger. And then Hook says to a 10-year-old, I'm huge. <laughs> Prepare to die, Peter Pan. Death will be an awfully great adventure. Death is the only adventure you have left. <laughs> There's a moment where Hook manages to get Peter pinned next to the whetstone for his hook and says, you know, this is just a dream and you wake up, you'll be Peter Banning, who drinks too much, ignores his children, and hides from his wife. And then all the Lost Boys and Peter's kids are like, no, we believe in you. And it's schmaltzy, but it works. Oh, yeah. It's very much a clap if you believe in fairies thing. Yeah. I almost wish that this doubt had been played with more throughout the movie, but there just kind of wasn't space for it. The movie's already two hours and 21 minutes long. Yeah. And this is like, this is in 1991 when we expected movies to mostly be around 90 minutes. They're like, I do believe in Peter Pan, and he knocks him back. He also picks up Hook's sword and hands it back to him, like so they can continue their sword fight. And then Hook is like, oh, thanks. And then he reaches out and he slashes his hook across Peter's arm. And Jack's like, hey, bad form! Peter, this is the second time in your life that you've fallen for this. This happens so often. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. <laughs> And eventually their sword fight leads them into the square with the large crocodile clock tower. And then the last boys are like, oh, yeah, this man has an easily exploitable drama. (laughs) (laughs) So they all have clocks with them, which they either brought or went and fetched from the big broken clock room when nobody was looking. And they just throw clocks at him, like from every corner to kind of box him in. And Peter disarms him and also flips off his wig And everybody is horrified to find out that, yes, that's a wig. Of course, that's a wig. Of course, that's a wig. You think anyone's hair looks like that? (laughs) And it's even the wig that's attached to his hat. He has a specific wig for his hat. And he's old. He's got wispy hair and like huge eyeshadow and eyeliner. He's just he's just an old man. He's just an old, sad man who will stab you. He will stab you. He will stab you. In fact, after you give him his dignity back and let him have his wig, he will then proceed to fire a dagger out of his wrist and attempt to kill you again. And this is not a small dagger, by the way. Oh, that's so much. He he probably can't bend his wrist while that thing's in there. Definitely not. And he just fires it out of his hands and like tries to stab Peter. Tinkerbell swoops in at the last minute. Hey, where you been, Tink? She was late. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) She was sleeping again. Slept in. She showed up to the war 15 minutes late with Starbucks. It's fine. There was traffic. <laughs> <laughs> she was having a feeling about it. There's a line at Starbucks. Don't worry about it. But she just swooped in just in time to keep Hook from gutting Peter with the hook. At which point, Peter ducks to the side and digs the hook into the gut of the big taxidermied crocodile, which is not as dead as we thought it was. No, this air starts escaping from it, and it even looks like it's musty, like it smells musty. And they're like, wait a minute, what's happening? And the whole crocodile starts rattling, and all the supports around it to hold up the clock tower start falling. (laughs) Uh, And then Hook stumbles backwards, the crocodile falls over, it manages to snatch Hook in its jaws... And when they look at the open jaws, once the dust clears, Hook is gone and the crocodile burps. And it's fine. This is a movie where pirates fight Lost Boys. (laughs) And I love that, like, the crocodile, you can never be totally sure if the crocodile has moved or not. It has not suddenly come to life. It's like, did its head tilt down because of the support structure falling or did it turn turn its head down to look directly at Hook? Unclear. Wonderfully so. Yes, it's good. But his, Hook's last words are, I want my mummy. Yep. And the kids are like, hey, Hook's dead. No more Hook. Bangarang. <laughs> they start to do a victory lap around the crocodile. And then Peter looks over and sees his kids holding hands. And he's like, oh, I can't stay and play. I got to go home. <laughs> and I love that he says, I can't stay and play because it, it, it's a big game. They're playing a game. And Tinkerbell... Gives the kids fairy dust and Peter tells them to think a happy thought and Maggie, the good child, is instantly, Mommy! (laughs) Because she's kind of here just as a cute accessory to the movie. Yeah, Maggie doesn't really have an arc in this movie. No, Maggie is the good child who loves Mommy and that's just kind of her whole bit. She's just... She's like six. She's just here. Jack, meanwhile, is like, my happy thought is my dad, Peter Pan. (sighs) (laughs) <sighs> <laughs> all right it's fine all right all right you've earned it you've earned that all right <laughs> tinkerbell starts leading the kids off we see them leave neverland and peter meanwhile pulls out a sword and chooses a successor and he picks Thudbutt. Yep, yeah, he says specifically i want you to look out for everyone smaller than you and which of course leads the smallest of the lost boys to be like well then who do i look after He's like never bugs. Never bugs little ones. Little ones. I love the way that the smile breaks across Thud's face here. It's very good. Oh, he is such a he just he radiates like sweetness. Also, he did some real body horror contortionism back in the fight by the way. Yeah, he grabbed his own feet and rolled down the ramps like a cannonball and it was surprisingly effective. He did it multiple times and it is Upsetting to think about. They did it by having him duck below the camera and then just having like a dummy that they wrapped into a sphere and they just rolled that down the ramps instead. It's a lot of camera tricks. Yeah, he bent 180 degrees across his hips. Uh, but anyway, Thud is now in charge of the Lost Boys and it couldn't happen to a better guy. Yep. And they're like, So you're going to go away and forget us again, right? And he's like, oh, well, I can never forget you. And it's like, Well, you, you kind of did. You did the last you time. You kind of did. <sighs> This is a fair concern they have. You can't even have the memory of a goldfish even when you are Peter Pan. <laughs> he doesn't even give them like a chintzy like, oh no, I'll always remember you in my heart like it's Kingdom Hearts or something. Like even if we forget, you'll always be here. But no, he's just like, oh, I'll never forget you. And they're just supposed to take that on credit. Yeah, we'll just have to believe you on that. Yeah. So meanwhile, the kids arrive back home first and they fly into the bedroom where their mom is asleep in a chair in the middle of the room. And they're like, oh, I know her. She looks like an angel. Let's not wake her yet. So they pull a weird prank on their mom. (laughs) This is also from the book, by the way. Oh, is it? Okay. When Wendy and Michael and John come back, their mother is out of the room and they're like, oh, okay, we'll just, you know, crawl into our beds and then surprise her when she comes back in. And then the mother comes back in and Mrs. Darling looks and says, oh, yeah, I've seen them in their beds so often in my (gasps) dreams when I wake up, they're still there. Oh my gosh, really? All of that? (laughs) Yeah, Oh and then they jump out of bed and she starts weeping. Oh my gosh! This scene here with Moira, it's just Moira doing the same thing as Mrs. Darling. and It's very good. Oh my gosh! I do really love the way Moira just looks at them in disbelief and then just starts weeping. It is really good. Oh, it's so good. So the kids are reunited with their mother. Meanwhile, Peter wakes up below, I think that is the Peter Pan statue. I think that is the Peter Pan statue in Kensington Gardens. Yeah. He wakes up right below it. He wakes up to the tinkling of bells and he's like, Tink! And then he looks over and it's f***ing Bob Hoskins sweeping up empty beer bottles. (laughs) Is that supposed to be like a Wizard of Oz movie style? Like, and you were here and you were here. Or is that actually literally just Smee? We just don't know. Or is it just Bob Hoskins just being like, Yeah, I'll also be a janitor. Top of the morning, gov. Or is this just Smee's new life? (laughs) Did Speed just run away to become a street sweeper? We don't know for sure. We're not going to examine it because Tinkerbell immediately shows up and clears any doubts that this might be like a fake out. It was a dream the whole time because Tinkerbell is just here. Yeah, Tinkerbell's just here. Oh, and she tells Peter, you know, that place between asleep and awake, the place where you still remember dreaming. That's where I'll always love you, Peter Pan. That's where I'll be waiting. Thank you, Carrie Fisher, for that line. Thank you, Carrie Fisher. Holy shit. (laughs) That's really good. It's really good. It is like almost childlike. It is fantastical. It is pure and it is wonderful. And then she just sort of like fades away almost. Like she shines so brightly and then she is gone. And it's just the sun shining through the arm of the statue. It's very good. And then Peter has to figure out how to get back into his own f-ing house. Yeah, he kind of forgets how to move like an adult. <laughs> he flips over a wall expecting to be able to fly up to the window. He is out of fairy dust. He hits the ground hard. And he's like, oh, Ha. Huh. Oh, hi, Nana. Hi, doggy! I love you. And basically he does the thing that I want to do in my head every time I see a dog. Crawls into the kennel with her, gives her kisses all over her face and then goes, oh, I have to get back up to the nursery. Like, and then he hears the cell phone ringing that Nana buried, digs it up like a dog. And then it's like, (laughs) hi, Brad. Hi, listen, I'd love to talk. But right now I have to climb a drain pipe. (laughs) Why? Because I ran out of fairy dust. Otherwise I would have flown. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Then he climbs up the drain pipe manages to get up to the window. The window is closed, by the way. So we have a moment where he's banging on the window being like, please let me in. And, you know, reliving some trauma. Yeah. And then Jack opens the window and he does this momentary fake out of like, what did I tell you about this window? And it's like, always leave it open! And picks his kid up and swings him around. <laughs> and then he walks and just he straight his... up to Moira without even breaking his stride and like kisses her a lot. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a lot. The cell phone rings again. He just chucks it out the window. Yeah, he's like, Have you ever felt the exhilaration of truly flying? Feel this. And he chucks it out the window. And then Moore's like, Where have you been? <laughs> <laughs> and Toodles walks in and he's like, Oh, I missed the adventure again, didn't I? Yeah, it's mentioned in the book that Toodles is the unluckiest of the Lost Boys because he always misses the adventure. Oh no! Like he'll he'll be with the Lost Boys all day and nothing fun happens. And then he pops around the corner for a little bit and when he gets back, they're busy sweeping up the blood. Toodles, <laughs> no <laughs>
1: <laughs> this
0: always happens to him. But Peter is like, oh, yeah, you did, buddy. Sorry. But here are your marbles because he's got them in a cord around his neck. Toodles is extremely excited that he didn't lose his marbles after all. And then you hear from the doorway, hello, boy. And he says, hello, Wendy lady. And you hug and he's crying and she says, boy, why are you crying? And he says, I don't know. A tear for every happy thought. <sighs> We go around the circle of the family, all of them saying, one for me, one for me. And then Toodle screams, one for me, dumps the leftover fairy dust in the (laughs) marble pouch out onto his head and flies away. And he just leaves. And then they all gather at the window to watch Toodle's the old man fly above London. He's flying to Neverland because he is flying towards the second star to the right. We look at the family first as Wendy's like, so your adventures are over. And he says, oh, no. To live will be an awfully big adventure. And then the screen fades to black as Toodles f- flies to the second star to the right, and that star stays up for a bit in the credits, which is really cute. Second star to the right is another one of those things where, like, the adaptations take it as f- at face value, but Peter really was just talking shit. Just, <laughs> he was talking complete bullshit. Oh, sure. But the phrase second star to the right and straight on till morning is so good. It's so good. It is so good. Oh. Ugh. And he's going to Neverland, and to live will be an awfully big adventure. Incidentally, in Star Trek VI, which is the last (laughs) Star Trek movie (laughs) with the TOS crew, Uh Kirk's last order as captain in that movie, when they ask for a course heading, he says, second star to the right and straight on till morning. Aww. Yeah, and I weep every time I weep. That is a really, like, dramatic confluence of kit things there, huh? Yeah. They did that for me specifically, I think. They targeted you. Yeah. That's a no scope. Yeah, they just sniped me right in the fucking head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that's Hook. I love this movie. I really like this movie. <laughs> I feel like what's interesting is that if you look at Steven Spielberg speaking about this movie afterwards, he will often say he doesn't really like it. It didn't perform very well, mostly because it got absolutely pummeled in the box office by Beauty and the Beast, which will happen. That'll happen. (laughs) But like, he... Talks about how, like, he was really, really confident in the first act and the epilogue, but everything in between he wasn't super confident on. And he said that every time he wasn't sure of himself, he upped the production value, made it bigger and more whimsical, which I can kind of see that vibe in there. I understand that creative impulse. But like overall, I think for a movie that is it has some parts where it almost strains the level of whimsy one is able to accept in one sitting. It is a wonderful like Peter Pan story. It is. Ah Mac, I'm really glad that you like watched this for the f- sort of the first time for, th- for first the first time
1: that I could as an adult remember it. Yeah. What was your favorite part of this? I really enjoyed most of it because I was, as I said, I was just kind of sitting there knitting and watching as I was going. That sounds really cozy. A lot of it was just about how they would talk, Mm. which I know is very vague. But like in the beginning, like I was talking about how like Moira and Peter were talking and how Moira was like, they are only going to come after you for a little while. I loved that. I loved Tinkerbell's speeches that Carrie Fisher took care of. (laughs) I loved how Hook interacted with Jack Like there was that one part where Jack starts crying and the acting is great there. Like the kid did great. Mm -hmm. And I really love just how Hook like addressed that situation and then got him to the Museum of Clocks. And I just love this dialogue and how they uh, emphasize that. Yeah,
0: it's like it all sounds like it's from a storybook. I like it for a lot of the same reasons that later in life I would end up really liking Sandman, which is to say it's a story about a story. Mm, Definitely. It's a story about Peter Pan as a character, but it's also the story about Peter Pan as a story. I'd also say it's probably one of Spielberg's movies about a troubled relationship with a parent that is the least, like, it is the one in which that vehicle works maybe the best, I feel. Because it's interesting because oftentimes his vehicle will usually be about, like, the kid grappling with the parent, and I guess the parent is also sort of here, too, and we see a little bit of that. But in this one, the emphasis is much more on Peter and trying to, like, realize that he needs to be a better person and that he needs to, like, be a better dad for his son. But it's not, like, the entire thrust of his entire arc. It is a lot about, like, reconnecting to childhood and growing up, but also, like, accepting the responsibilities for childhood that an adult has. A lot of people take away the wrong thing from Peter Pan, which is they think that the, that Peter is the character that you're supposed to emulate, that you're always supposed to say young at heart, uh, which is incorrect. Hook is one extreme, Peter is the other, and the character that you're supposed to take to heart is Wendy. Yeah. Who is the one that strikes the balance between the two. Because Wendy's problem at the start of the book is that she's functionally a grown-up. She's been ready to grow up for a while now. Yeah, like Peter even brings her into Neverland to be the lost boy's mother. Yeah, she's brought in to be a mother. And sort of over the course of this, she realizes, Oh, I don't want to be a grown-up yet. I want to enjoy this while I have the chance. That's such a pivotal point for Wendy because she is like 12 years old. She is just on the cusp of what is like societally considered to be an adult young lady. Her periods do any day now, and and lots of people will point at that and be like, Well now you're an adult. And it's like, no. You're a woman now. No, don't think so. For so many reasons. Yeah, where yeah. remember that part of Bioshock Infinite where you get to see the female main character's Menarche? Mm-mm. <laughs> Mm-mm. 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 Don't think so. No. 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 Don't. No. No. I'm good. Didn't like it. Didn't care for that. Not good. No. Did not care for it. No. (sighs) That to look at. Ugh. Hook though. Hook though is good. Hook though is really good. You should watch Hook. So you read the book recently. You watched the movie recently. How you doing? How you doing in your Peter Pan feels there, Kit? Oh well, I cried a couple of times today. Good. Peter Pan though. Peter Pan though. I think that's about going to wrap us up here for this episode, which means it's time for our final facts. Kit, what's your final fact? If at all possible, avoid Rudyard Kipling ass shit in your adaptations (laughs) of early 20th century children's novels.
1: Mac, what's your final fact? If somebody in your life is doing something stupid, just have a conversation with them about it and be literary about it, man. Not literary in the bad way, but literary in the fun way. Say it
0: real good, as in florid. Say it real good. Mm -hmm. Okay, Annie, what's your final fact? If an old gay pirate asks if you want to be his son, you say yes. You say yes. (laughs) (laughs) You say yes every time. You say absolutely, Captain New Dad. Join us next time in February when we will be doing a Valentine's Day roundup of some various Romeo and Juliet adaptations so we can all prove our fact. Romeo and Juliet is not about what you think it's about. Even you, the person who smugly thinks you know what Romeo and Juliet is really about. <laughs> yeah, you're probably wrong, too. I don't know, man. I don't know you. We're going to be looking at some various adaptations over the years, and I'm 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 pretty intrigued by how this is going to go down.
1: Oh, yeah. This is going to be an exciting variation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So join us next time for that. I Will Fight You comes out every five weeks. It is edited by Lucas Brown of the Math of You podcast. You can find us wherever you download podcasts. If you want to talk to us on social media, right now we're at Twitter at CRC Podcasts and uh, as long as Twitter continues to exist. Yeah, I'm also trying to <laughs> spread out our feelers a little on some other places, but you know, you can find links to those in the feed and we'll see sort of where the dust <laughs> settles on that one. Uh, but you can also find out stuff about all of our projects at our website, crookedrussiancam.horse or crookedrussiancam.gay. There's no billionaires there. It's just us. If you want to support us, you can do that with your dollars over at patreon.com slash the for just as little as a dollar a month. You can get early access to early episodes of I Will Fight You. Our $5 bonus content tier has show notes for I Will Fight You and your levels also get you stuff for our other shows like Date Me Damn It and Gem Jammer. If you want to support us, just, you know, like, comments, review, subscribes. Our YouTube comments are surprisingly kind. I'm yeah. kind of not trying to look that one in the mouth too much. Also, like whatever social media we're at, you can talk to me there, I guess. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, Mackenzie and I have mostly given up on social media, so it's mostly Annie you'll be talking to. I mean, it's
1: been a... Ma- Max Max is on social... I'm on Twitter. Yeah. Max sometimes.
0: A... Yeah, Max sometimes on Twitter. Max sometimes on Tumblr. But I mean, if you're going to like add us, it's probably going to be me and like if you want to like <laughs> Say nice things about my friends. I'll pass them along. We've got channels. We also have a Discord that has some good folks in it. Join us next time when we'll be talking about Romeo and Juliet adaptations. And until then, I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And we have fought you. I think that's everything. Yes. It sounds like everything. Admittedly, I'm not all together in the brain right now. Yeah, I mean... See, previous note about mixing blood pressure medication and melatonin. Don't do that, kids. (laughs)